Hi, this is Steve. Last week, we lost the great Martin Landau, who was not only a brilliant actor, but a great teacher, director, and a communicator about the craft of acting. In fact, he's so deeply connected to the profession of acting that it would be tough to imagine that craft without him. As an early student of the Actors Studio, he studied with Steve McQueen, Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, John Cassavetes, and Eli Wallach. As a teacher, he trained generations of actors, including Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston. And as a performer, he stunned audiences with great performances for Alfred Hitchcock, Francis Ford Coppola, and Tim Burton. However, it's his performance in Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is, for me, his most shattering and haunting. Crimes and Misdemeanors is a rich, complex, dark, funny, and in the end, unknowable exploration into faith, sin, justice, and guilt. It is, without question, one of my favorite films and a perfect introduction both to Landau and one of the most prolific writer-directors of all time, the brilliant, funny, and endlessly fascinating Woody Allen. John and I go seriously deep on this one, so get ready for an epic journey into crimes and misdemeanors this Friday on The Cinephiles. If a man commits a crime, if he if he kills, then one way or another he will be punished. If he's caught so. If he's not caught, that which originates from a black deed will blossom in a foul manner. Uh, you're relying a little too heavily on the Bible, so... No, 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 no. Whether it's the, uh, the Old Testament or Shakespeare, murder will out. Who said anything about murder? You did. Did I? Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, actor, and host of numerous shows here in Los Angeles, California, and now a columnist. A columnist. That's right, a columnist. That's awesome. I'm going to add some more titles to my name. Effie. Yeah. Yeah, fireman. Sure, baker. Yeah, baker. Candlestick maker. I, I like candlestick maker. I like that. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed. If Steve's very enthusiastic to, to intro the show today because we are doing a film that he is super excited to do. Yeah, I brought this up a lot. You did. This yeah. is one of his favorite films, and it is. not what we would traditionally find our way into this director. But I, I will let him take it from here. I just want you all to notice. That Steve is quite happy to be doing this. <laughs> it's absolutely true. This. It's yes. absolutely true. Yes. The re- and of course, the reason we're doing this film, which is not something I'm excited about, right. is uh, is that we lost another great actor, which is Martin Landau, yeah. uh, a man who has just is a tremendous actor with a tremendous history. Yeah. And as we talked about, what would we do to honor him? For me, as you say, there's no question the film is Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors. Right. I mean, this is a movie that I've gone back to and gone back to over and over again. And for me... This might be among the, what I would say are the three most profound and thought-provoking films we've done so far in the cinephiles. Wow. Along with Amadeus. Okay. And Apocalypse Now. Okay. As films that was like, there's just so much. Right. To chew on. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, about, about life and philosophy and ideas. And this sure. is a, this, and that's it's my kind of movie, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, You're a thinker, Steve. I, know. I, I, I can't stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes my wife would like, like just stop it. Just, just turn you, it off. You'd just be Forrest Gump for like two days. Oh, I just man, like I wish. that for two days. I wish. Um, <laughs> and so one of the things that's going to mess us up a little bit is that uh, I teach a whole uh, class, a whole unit on Woody Allen. 
Oh, and so right. I've done a lot of kind of biography of him, and mm-hmm. so I'm, I want to give some biography of Woody yes, Allen. Please. This is our first Woody Allen film. Yeah. I don't want to spend the hour and a half to two hours I spend in class doing his biography. Please that don't. would be that yeah. would be a little bit too much. If you want to do that, go watch the the documentary that's on Netflix. <laughs> it's a fantastic um, documentary, two part documentary. Fantastic. Yeah, it's really really good. Yep. Um, so he's born Alan Stewart Konigsberg in Brooklyn in 1935, <laughs> and and for me, in many ways, this guy is kind of the model of the independent filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Even though he's not necessarily independent in terms of independent from the studio system, right. but the way he works, he has made 50 films, yeah. essentially one film every year since he started. Right. There's nobody else like that. There's mm-hmm. nobody else who just continually churns out films, and he has had complete and total artistic control of every single one of them. Yep. Again, nobody like that. Right. Yeah. He's also you know, a writer-director of all of his films. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's, it's, it's and sometime actor and sometime actor and sometime lead yeah some of his uh, frequently I mean yes. like for the first for the first you know dozen or so yeah. he's the lead uh, he started writing jokes in high school in high school he started and it was, it was this time where you could just sell jokes to the newspaper mm-hmm. to magazines and that's what he was doing at like 15 years old that's right. how he's making his living he got into the um, NBC writer development program and uh, he started writing for the Tonight Show for Dick Cavett for Ed Sullivan and then of course he gets on just at the tail end of something we've talked about before, which mm-hmm. is the greatest writing staff of all time on Sid Caesar's show of shows. Yeah. So he goes into a room that's already been established with Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, Sam Simon, his younger brother, Neil Simon, and Larry Gelbart. Right. Like this is, there's no better writing room in history. And right. then now you had Woody Allen in the mix. Um, he And then he gets uh, managers, which was really unusual at the time to have a manager. And they uh, said, you know what? We think you should become a performer. And he didn't want to at the no. first. And he said, you know, but they said, we think you should be a stand-up comedian. He had terrible, terrible stage fright. Yeah. But became what today is listed just recently as the top four stand-up comedian of all time in really? history. Yeah. Where did you find this list? This was on, oh, it was, which one was it? I don't have that note now. <laughs> I think it was Comedy Central. I, think I would like to push Central back on list. this. Well, I don't know okay. if he's a top four, but he's certainly, his stand ups are amazing. And They're I amazing. Remember, I remember stumbling upon them. You know, we, we, I go into a YouTube hole every once in yeah, a while, me too. right? Yeah, you, I'm sure, there's sure a lot of people listening do about things they're interested in. And some of you know that I did my first stand-up like a few weeks ago. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so for me, I've always been an addicted... I've always been addicted to stand-up. Me and too. When I found Bob Newhart's stand-up, when oh. I found Woody Allen's stand-up, and this is after I'd already appreciated them on their TV shows and in their movies, to go back and listen to their stand-ups, you can see the construction of their humor, the construction of what they're going to do later on in those TV shows and in those films in their stand-ups. And so to me, it's fascinating to listen to Woody's stand-up. It is, it is so good. And you can tell he's incredibly awkward and socially... It pains him to be up there, you can tell. Right, but, but that's he's so act. funny. Well, I mean, that's what's interesting about yeah. what he's doing is that he creates this persona. Yeah. And this is... He is right at that transition moment in stand-up from joke-based, you know, Henny yeah. Youngman style interchangeable everybody buying and selling jokes stand up into right. the character based story based stand up right which is really what even to this day we still kind of are living with and Woody Allen's one of the key people who changed that and he creates this persona that is awkward mm-hmm. and uber confident simultaneously right you know that's the interesting thing he kind of brags and it's very sexual frank about sexuality yeah. and he's just this sort of fascinating person and every what i what i learned about him Every little twitch and nuance and hiding himself, all that stuff, that is practiced. Yeah. That is, it seems improvisational. Right. It is not. Wow. That is him locking it down. And then he became a active 
TV personality. Yep. Which, I mean, he fought a kangaroo, you know? <laughs> like, he was on, you know, he was always a regular guest on Dick Cavett on all these shows and became just a well-known person that you would see on TV all the time. Right. And then, uh, Studio's gonna make What's New Pussycat, which right. we actually talked about when we talked about Casino Royale because mm-hmm. it related to the producer owned James Bond. And they decide to bring in Woody Allen as a writer to punch up the script. And he says, well, I'll write, I'll punch up the script, but only if you let me play, play a small part in the movie. And they say, right. sure. Strangely enough, that part got bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and if you watch What's New Pussycat, which I haven't watched in a long time, right. it's not one of my favorites, but he steals the show. Wow. And from that point forward, he becomes a writer-director and does this incredible run in the 70s of these ridiculous, over-the-top comedies. Mm-hmm. You know, And he becomes one of the most successful comedy actor-director in Hollywood. What's you know. the one he does where he's like doing the voice, like the, it's all, it's an Asian film and like, what's up Tiger Lily or whatever? Yeah. What's, what's up Tiger Lily? Yeah. And that's where they do the dub. The dub. They yeah. dub all the voices. Yeah. Right, right. That's right after what's new pussycat. Oh, interesting. And he okay. does, you know, take the money and run and bananas and sleeper, which right. I love. Right. And they are this mix of, com- of complete slapstick silliness and this weird Woody Allen intellectual streak like you look at love and death and it's it's really a love letter to the great russian writers you know to tolstoy and dostoevsky so so you're getting slapstick and silly ridiculous sexual farce situations put against the backdrop of a deep love of russian literature yeah um and then the, the the most important moment is 1977 and annie hall right because that's where and i don't think there's any transition of a director's vision like that in Mm. film Someone who is locked into this is what they do. They are a comedy, silly yeah. director. Yeah. And then he does this beautiful, artistic, still very funny. Sure, sure. But a complete departure from everything else yeah. that he's done. Yeah. And what follows is this unbelievable run of movies through the late 70s and early 80s, including Manhattan and Hannah and Her Sisters, that culminates, I think, with where we are now, which is Crimes and Misdemeanors. Right, Radio Days. Radio Days all the, all those, All those are that are in there. Yeah, it's so Stardust fantastic. Memories, Broadway, yeah, Danny Rose, Cairo. Purple Rose, Ky- Zelig. Right. Zelig, I mean, oh. I mean, Steve, one day we will do Zelig. Sure. I would like to throw my, this, 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 down, this like, a marker down and say, because we've agreed to do Crimes and Misdemeanors with you, you must agree to do Zelig with me. Because I know we'll do Annie Hall and we'll do Manhattan, but that's the one that I, I that's my favorite Woody Allen bar none. Let's do it. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. You don't have to convince me. Okay. That's a fa- it's particularly a fascinating movie considering, like today it's yeah. not so fascinating because we, we've seen a lot of things where right. people are doing mockumentaries and sure, using sure. old footage and all that kind of stuff, but in 1981 or whatever years, yeah. I think it was something like that. I still, but I still love this more than any mockumentary ever made. I still love Zelig more than any mockumentary. More than Spinal Tap. More than Spinal Tap. Yeah. More than any of the Christopher Guest ones. More right. than any anything else. I just love. Just I just think it's so fun. It makes me laugh from beginning to end. You know. You know what's crazy? I might too. I might actually agree with you. Yeah. Because I'm less. You know. Spoiler alert to our our, fan, yeah. our fans out there. I really appreciate Christopher Guest, but yes. I don't love Christopher Guest. Ooh, ooh. I mean, I, I... That's a strong statement, son. I mean, they're wow. great. I appreciate them. Wow. But I don't go like, oh, I want to go watch uh, Best in Show again. That's yeah, because you hate actors, Steve. Tell the truth. Yes, that's what it is. <laughs> it's that I hate actors. Um, <laughs> go ahead, yes. um, And the one other thing that I... I a couple, Just a couple of quick more things I want to say about Woody Allen. Yeah. Um, the, the first thing is that, um, you know, you recently did a... Top 10 show on comebacks. Yes. And I said, if I had been on that show, I would have put Woody Allen on the list. And the reason is, is because he has been, I think, oh, he's done Mm -hmm. over and over again. He'll do, you know, after 
uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, there's a right. good list of three or four or five not so great movies. Mm-hmm. And then there's Bullets Over Broadway. Right. And you go, oh, he's Which back. Great. Yeah. He's back. And then the same thing happens again. Three or four not so good movies. Yeah. And then he comes back with Match Point. Right. You know, and then three or four not so good movies. And then uh, Midnight in Paris. Midnight in Paris, which yeah. is his most successful movie of all time. Mm-hmm. And then again, several not so good movies. And then Blue Jasmine, which is just a brutal. Blue Jasmine's fantastic. Unbelievable movie. Yeah. And it's like, it's, you know, every time you think he's out. Yeah. No, he still has something to say. But see, I would push back against it because, like you just said at the beginning of this thing, he releases a movie every year. Yeah. And most of the people who come back were people who had disappeared for a while. Mm. Ha- or, or yeah, if you define played. the term that way. Yeah. To that's me, it's how sort we of. It. It, 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 to me, it was more like the, oh, you're not making good films anymore. Right. And no, no, you still are. Yeah. I think the only exception to that was uh, Shyamalan that we allowed on the, li- on the initial mm. lists. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's a good, but it certainly could make, you can make a great uh, case for it. Yeah. So the couple, couple things that we see that happen throughout his films, one mm-hmm. is his love of magical realism. Yes. Which is that, and which is this very specific sort of, I'm going to play with reality. We're not doing fantasy. Yeah. But I can play with it. We can have a character come off a movie screen. We can have a character go back in time. We can have, you know, this idea of just, no, we could get to play in yeah, reality. Yeah. And the other thing is really strong female characters. Yes. Uh, throughout his films. I mean, he has um, more uh, female Oscar winners in his films, I think, than any director. Wow. Yeah, I think he has, by the way, he's received, he's personally received 24 Oscar nominations, <laughs> 16 for screenplay. He's had 18 nominations for performances wow. in his film and seven wins. 18 for the actors, actors. in his film. Not 18, him personally. Not for him. Yeah, no, no. In his film. I don't yeah. know that he's ever gotten nominated. He probably has. I, I would be surprised if he got nominated for Best Actor. Yeah. Not that he shouldn't. Yeah, maybe in Annie Hall. I don't, I don't I really remember. I just think remember. he's stronger in every other area. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, that's, and, you know, and this is why actors want to work for Woody yeah. Allen. Is that, and the way he works is that you don't get a script. Is that Woody, under basically lock and key, you get sides, and Woody would be interested in this part for you, and pretty much everyone says yes. Yeah. Well, no, and from what I've heard, and Steve, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on this, what I've heard from the legend of Woody is that Woody almost always comes in under budget, yep. ahead of schedule, uh, and people work for scale for him at times. Yep. Uh, it's not scale like what a normal actor would make who's like got five and unders, but a scale for what they would they are making for right. their particular status as an actor in that in their time frame of their career. You know, like Scarlett Johansson took way less than what she could have commanded right. to do Match Point. Uh, and so there are a number of actors that you're right come back and they do ensemble parts like whatever uh, the, was it the trouble with Harry was that one with uh, Devil Deconstructing Harry Deconstructing Harry like yeah. there were so many fantastic actors yeah. who were at the prime of their career yeah. who were willing to come and do smaller parts in that film including Julie Louis-Dreyfus because he's Woody Allen because it's Woody yeah yeah because everyone wants to work with him. Yeah. And, and he uh, notoriously doesn't talk to his actors. Yeah. He's very quiet on the set. He likes long takes. And he just mm-hmm. like sets it up and he lets the actors go. Yeah. Says very, very little to him. He does fire actors, by the way. Yes. If, uh, if he's not happy with them, he'll just let them go. He trusts his casting directors. He has amazing casting directors, yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't care about fame. He doesn't care about awards. He doesn't care about money. He cares about doing the work. Yeah. And what they say about him is the minute he stops editing the last film, he starts writing the next film. That's amazing. And he's just going to keep on doing it until he drops. Yeah. And, and you can see that in the documentary, that, yeah. the, the uh, Life in Pictures, I think it's yeah. called. And it's one I've seen four or five times. Yeah. because, And it's a two-parter, which is like it's almost four hours long. 
but it's worth it because you get to see his process, his mentality, how he approaches it, how he talks to the actors because they're doing it while they're filming that uh, Josh Brolin, uh, uh, Naomi Watts one that he did that wasn't that successful. Yeah, I never even saw it. Yeah, Yeah. but like they're talking to those actors and then so they're reflecting on their process and then you get interviews with Diane Keaton, you get interviews with a bunch of other actors and they all talk about how similar their process is and then yes, you're right, Steve, Woody fires people. Like it's the thing, everyone has this warm feeling about Woody. They want to work with Woody Allen but he has fired and he lets you go like that day yep. like as soon as he knows you can't you ain't gonna you ain't gonna do it he lets you go and it's and that's that and you're right he doesn't direct actors with extensive amount of time he doesn't do a yep. lot of takes he says just do this and do it this way and do it like this and blah, and he, blah, blah. And he cast the, and he casts the right people yes he casts great actors mm-hmm. you know if you can cast great act, if you cast Martin Landau maybe you don't have to give him a lot of direction that's right yeah so let's talk a little bit about Martin Landau sure, because sure. that's why we're doing this yeah so uh, Martin Landau actually grew up a few blocks from Woody Allen. Oh wow! Yeah, but I'm he's surprised o- that New York thing. Yeah. yeah, he's older. They didn't know each other, and mm-hmm. he started uh, as a cartoonist no. doing oh, caricatures, no. working for the New York Daily News, I think it was. And he, this was going to be a career. He's like from 18 on, he's doing like every single day. Mm-hmm. Cartoons are going out in national syndicated papers, right. little caricatures like Hirschfeld, that kind of thing. Yes, and he sees some a great performance. This is and, and goes, no, no, that's what I want to do. Goes off to audition for the actor studio auditions with 500 people and only two people got in Mm -hmm. him and steve mcqueen yeah yeah so those two are together and uh and he is in the actor's studio his best friend's james dean Mm -hmm. he uh marilyn monroe is there then he's with eli wallach eli wallach sydney pollock john cassavetes i mean this is the time of the actor's studio and he his relationship to the actor studio never stopped. Yep. He was a teacher and a director in the actor studio until the year until this year. Yeah, and know? he went and started the branch in LA. Yep. Yeah, he was one of the founding members I think from the LA actor studio like when they transitioned from New York to LA yep. as well. Yeah. And one of his students was Jack Nicholson. Wow. Yeah. So he's Jack Nicholson's teacher. Wow. And uh, does work on off Broadway, mm-hmm. Broadway comes to Hollywood. Is in a few movies. Of course, the most famous one he's in is North by Northwest, right? As a bad guy, yeah. Um, and he is young and thin and kind of interesting looking and fascinating. Yeah. And then his career doesn't quite go where he mm-hmm. wants it to go. He's always working and he's right. always teaching. And then he gets Mission Impossible, which is really how I got to know him. Yeah, because I loved Mission Impossible. Yeah. I love that series. And he is great. He's really the person who steals the show. Yeah. And for you kids listening, we're talking about the TV series. Yeah. The 60s. We have to sometimes reference that. Not the Tom Cruise movies. Peter Graves, Peter Graves Greg right. Morris. Right. That's that's mission. That that is mission. And that will always, by the way, be Mission Impossible for me. Well, of course. There's this Tom Cruise movie series that is, has some good movies and of some course, less good sure. movies. Um, but but that is not Mission Impossible <laughs> to me. It's Martin Landau. That's and, fair. Yeah. All and Nimoy guys. was in it for a, Nemo a was in it season for, or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah a couple of seasons. That, yeah. Um, and uh, and then his big comeback is with Tucker, the Man in His Dream, yes. the Coppola film. And he Great gets an Oscar film. Oscar Bridges. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good one. I think that's I an underrated film. Yeah, I think so too. I don't know if it's some one that we need to do on this podcast but yeah. it's what i like yeah yeah um and and right after that is crimes and misdemeanors and woody allen unlike what we said up to this point mm-hmm. sent him the whole script Ooh. and that's respect yeah and he said it is the best script not the best woody allen script he'd ever seen it is the best screenplay he'd ever seen wow so he goes to new york he has a meeting with woody allen and woody allen doesn't really talk very much in the meeting right so martin landau's kind of going 
man, this is not going well. This isn't going to happen. <laughs> and the only thing Woody Allen says is that the person he would really have wanted for the film if he was still alive was Edward G. Robinson. That's who he thinks should have played this part. Holy crap. Yeah. My mind is getting blown right now thinking of the scenes with, with Edward, Edward G. G. Robinson right. doing it. And I think it, could, it would have worked. So, wow. so, so Martin Landau goes away. He goes back to his hotel room, yeah. gets a call from the casting director who says, Woody wants to know how long you're in New York. Now, Lando had a flight out in like three hours. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, I'm here for a couple of days. <laughs> uh, and, and they say, great, come on back in. We're going to have another meeting. So he goes back in. And, <laughs> and again, Woody Allen mentions Edward G. Robinson. Yeah. And Martin Landau says, you are absolutely wrong. He shouldn't play that as a wrong. You are wrong about this character. And as he's saying this, he's going, this is the best script I've ever read. Yeah. I want this part more than anything. I am telling this amazing director yeah. to his face that he's wrong about the character. He said, you cannot play this person like a heavy. Yeah. You can't play this person like a bad guy. You have to be this person. You have to be sympathetic with them mm -hmm. throughout. You have to make it understandable. Other, otherwise, the movie doesn't work. Yeah. Woody doesn't say very much, naturally. Casts him in the movie. About halfway through the production, he comes up very quietly to Martin Landau and says, mm, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and the reason I only say that uh, Edward G. Robinson would be great, because some of He's his... great. Yeah, some of his later films, Edward G. Robinson played more of sad sack, pathetic, vulnerable guys who were being undone by the world, undone by love. And so he could have played this part. But if he was wanting to cast Edward G. Robinson to play it as a heavy, then yes, Martin Lando is absolutely correct. Right. This is better that his brother is the heavy and right. he is the conflicted guy with all these uh, religious uh, issues going on inside yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. The and guilt. of course, after this, he went on to do Ed Wood, which yeah. he won the Academy Award for, yes. um, which is a perfectly good movie. It's not sure. one I go back to. For, I know you you're know. not you're not a big fan of it. Yeah. 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 Maybe I should watch it again. I don't know. Yeah, yeah you can if you'd like. But, you know, we this, here's the deal. I just don't want to say this completely and, and seriously. We all don't have to like every damn film that everyone else thinks is amazing. Like, that's what makes us humans is right. the ability to have certain films that we absolutely love that everyone else loves too, but also certain films we don't love that everyone else loves. And that's okay. Well, and the other thing... Like Goonies, goddammit. All right. <laughs> <laughs> always comes back to Goonies. It always does. The, the other thing to add to that, they're limited hours in the day. And there are so many there really movies are. I haven't seen. There really are. That yeah. people, you know, on Twitter all the time now, people are saying, have you seen this? I'm like, yeah. no, I haven't seen that. Yeah. You know, and it's like, now we, now we have a professional reason. Like, yeah. we've got to watch movies, <laughs> you know. Um, Welcome to my world, Steve. Yeah. Two years of this now. It's, it's a tough life. <laughs> it, well, it's exhausting life, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Should we get into the movie? Yeah, let's do it. Um, we start in an award ceremony. We're all very proud of Judah Rosenthal's philanthropic efforts. His endless hours of fundraising for the hospital, the new medical center, and now the ophthalmology wing, which until this year had just been a dream. But it's Judah Rosenthal, our friend, that we most appreciate. The husband, the father, the golf companion. This is, I have to say, I think part of what draws me to this movie is that this world is very familiar to me. Yeah, this is what I was looking forward to doing this episode with you, because... To me, this is a world I'm outside looking through a window yeah. at. And because you you're Jewish and you grew yep. up with a certain amount of affluence, I would say, yeah. you understand this, the nuance of this film. 
Yeah. Right? You understand a little more intrinsically than, than people like me watching it who have, or didn't grow up in the same situation. Well, my, my dad is an optometrist. Yes. This is an ophthalmologist. Yes. Uh, my dad was on all these optometric boards, so we were always at dinners like this. Mm-hmm. My mom is still to this day a professional do-gooder on school boards and library commissions, and now she's on the Golden West chapter. She's the chairman of the Golden West chapter of the ALS right. uh, charity, and she's you know she was just in Washington, D.C. doing raising awareness for ALS. I mean, this is so going to these events... I've been at this event, yeah, yeah, and I've yeah. heard these speeches and heard these jokes, and, and, <laughs> and, and some of them are not so good. And uh, we see our first uh, moment with Martin Landau and his family, and he's very nervous. And then we go kind of immediately into this flashback yeah. where it's now right before the, um, the award ceremony, and he'd been calm all day, and mm-hmm. then he gets this letter. Yeah. And the letter is from Dolores. Yeah. Angelica Houston. Yeah. Uh, in a, quite a fascinating performance. And the letter is to uh, Judah's wife. Yeah. Saying, I've been having an affair with your husband. Your husband and I are more than intimate friends and have been deeply in love for over two years now. This must be faced as there are so many ramifications and complications. Many promises were made, etc. I need an open exchange with you to clear things. For all three of us to go on, the situation has got to be confronted in some fashion. This is a great way to start a movie. Oh, sure. We're in. You're we're three minutes into the movie. You're like, oh, I get, I, I get what's going on here. Well, I think that's why you cast someone like Martin Landau, right? He, you're slowly, Woody is slowly uh, panning the camera into his face. You can tell everything's going on around him, and he's lost in another world. He's lost another world, and his wife, I think it's Claire Bloom, the actress who's yeah. playing his wife, is explaining that he's been this way ever since. The, he's just nervous about the speech. You see his right. daughter having the conversation with her. It's all like what I imagine the rich world is like, just talking about this kind of stuff and being like, oh, he was great this morning and not so much now. And, all this. and so it's, just, it's interesting to see this, and then you see the slow pan. Then we go to that, and it seems innocent. Like, jump in the shower. I, you know, I got to use the shower. Right. Then the letter arrives. And the letter wasn't, like, he only found it because she didn't open the letters. Yep. She said, I, I haven't had a chance to look at the letters. I, they've been sitting on the desk all day or the table all day. So he finds it, reads it, we hear the voiceover, and he throws it in the fire. Yep. And here we go onto this yep. journey that we ourselves as viewers are going to have to decide if we want to sympathize with this guy or not. And it's fantastic. Yeah. And then we go back to he's in the middle of his speech. Yeah. Talking about his charity work mm-hmm. and talking about uh, his past. Now it's funny I use the term answered prayers. You see, I'm a man of science. I've always been a skeptic, but I was raised quite religiously. And while I challenged it, even as a child, some of that feeling must have stuck with me. I remember my father telling me, the eyes of God are on us always. The eyes of God. What a phrase to a young boy. I mean, what were God's eyes like? Unimaginably penetrating, intense eyes, I assumed. And there's something that I came up when we talked about When Harry Met Sally, which is this idea of a the- the thesis film. Yeah. And that When Harry Met Sally poses a question at the very beginning of the film, which is, can men and women be friends or will the sex thing always get in the way? Right. And then the whole film is answering that question. Yeah. Woody Allen is the master of the thesis film. Like Woody Allen is, does this throughout his films. Not yeah. all of them. Yeah. But there are many of them in Bullets Over Broadway and Annie Hall where we start with an idea. Yeah. And here we start with... The eyes of God are mm-hmm. watching you. And what does that mean? Yeah. And is there a God? And of course, Judah is a person who doesn't believe in God. Right. He exists in a world without God. 
in yes. his mind. That is what he thinks. I, well, I, he doesn't believe in, yes, but he believes in morality and good and evil and all that. So the although he may not be a practicing believer, he is still, uh, how would I say this correctly? Like the guilt and all of that is still there within him. All of all the tenets of being a believer is all there without him actually being a believer. Well, he was certainly he was raised with it, right? And it's deep. There's something in there, right? Well, and this is, but this is, this is the questions we're going to ask throughout this film, right? Is what does that mean? What does it mean to believe? What is it? What is morality and sin and all these things exactly are going to come out through this film? Because let's remember the name of the film, the title yeah. is Crimes and Misdemeanors, right. and this is also, by the way, an obvious rest- reference to Dostoevsky and yeah. Crime and Punishment, which are also books that deal with sin and morality yeah. and God and what all those things mean. Yeah. And now we're going to look at it through the Woody Allen. Eyes. Yeah, and but the thing with Judah is Judah is tortured by this upbringing, whereas his brother, played by Jerry Orbach, is not. They were both raised in the same upbringing, but he's gone so far the other way that Orbach's compl- Orbach's statement throughout the entire film is that I live in the real world, you live in a fantasy world. You, you- live in this world of where you think things are supposed to be a certain way, and there's justice, and there's God, and it's good. Wait, and evil. wait, 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 wait. That's hold what on. He says to him. Wait. Hold- you think he's saying that he lives in a fantasy world about justice and God? No, I think he's saying he lives in a fantasy world about what's right, what's wrong, what you should do, that there's justice, all this kind of stuff. And Jerry Orbach's character, oh, I'm sorry, I can't remember, is it, is it Dave? Jack. Jack. Jack doesn't. And Jack says that when they're walking in the park, when, yeah. when uh, later on in the film, when, uh, uh, when Judah wants to confess what happened, Jack is like, I, you, you can't, I'm not going to let you do that. You know, you, you, you do this thing and you go along this stuff, but like, I'm living in the real world here. You're right. you're living in some other world, right? Right. Well, what's interesting is that because what he says is, you have your country club and your yeah, privilege and your saying. big house. Yeah, that's the. I think it's it's about privilege. It's a fantasy it's, world in his mind. Right. Well, it's it's not the real world. I don't think he's saying that you live in God's world. No, I didn't or say you that. Live in, yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying that. Okay. Um. So. Uh, we have this little party, and then we yep. go, and now we're going to meet Dolores. We're going to meet Angelica Houston, mm-hmm. who, by the way, is another one of Martin Landau's students. Oh, wow. Yeah, so this is his, her, her and her teacher. And uh, Judah is waiting for her at the her apartment. Yes. Why did you write that letter? You know why we've been through it. You want to destroy my life and my family? I wanted to know the kind of man she's married to. It was lying on the table all day. By sheer chance, she didn't open it. By a miracle, I got it first. You told me over and over again you'd leave Miriam. We made plans. I didn't. You did. I gave up things for you, business oh, opportunities. dreams. And there were other men who wanted me. What do you want from me? She wants him. Yeah. That's the big thing. Yeah. She, is that she, she believes that he made promises to her. Mm-hmm. She believes that she gave up things for him that right. she had business opportunities and she believes that he lied or that he pro- he said that there's no passion left in his relationship with his wife and that therefore her expectation was she was going to leave that he was going to leave Miriam right which he's not and then there's this moment where he says we're going to work it out and he hugs her mm-hmm. and his face when he hugs her is so you can see the wheels turning mm-hmm. it's like i'm hugging her to, to resolve this moment yeah this angry horrible moment but he's not hugging her because he loves her yes this whole thing that happens between them we get this presentation of what looks like uh an angry woman who he was having an affair with right who's upset because she believed that he had said that he was going to leave his wife and 
when we see later on in the film that he makes just an offhand comment, this is what I think about it. it see, the thing is, Steve, I love the I, rewatching this film for this podcast was fantastic for me because there's so much in here. Right. And as an older man now, I haven't seen this film in like 10 years. Yeah. But as an older man now, having lived through the relationships that I've lived through, this is a fascinating film to watch from both sides. Yeah. Because initially, when I first remember watching this film, I was like, oh man, you got to get out of this situation. And she's, she's crazy. She's going to do this, right. this. But as I got older, I'm like, no, no, you're an idiot. Yeah. You decided to have this affair. And so. This woman, you you have to reap what you sow. And he's always about like, do I deserve this? Do I really deserve this? His entire uh, uh, complaint throughout the entire movie is, do I really deserve her taking stuff from me and messing up my life just because I slept with her, just because I do this or that? And it's it's the, the struggle inside of his head. Well, and it's fascinating, man. Well, this is, and I, I have the same reaction because yeah. when you meet Judah in that first speech, yeah. For me, at least, I like him. Of course. And what we're presented with is here is an upstanding member of the community. This is a good man. Mm -hmm. This is an archetypal good man. He has a family. He works in the community. Right. He is charitable. He is learned. He is scholarly. He is a physician. Sure, he's successful. He's yeah. successful. And as a younger person, and I think part of this is Angelica Houston's performance, which is brilliant. Yes. Because... I don't like being around Angelica Houston in this movie. When she is on screen, it is uncomfortable and difficult, and I'm like, let's get the hell away from her. <laughs> so I, I, I tend to dislike her. And so my tendency, is, just as you said, as a younger man, was yeah. to side with Martin Landau. Mm -hmm. When I watch it now, you see that this man is vain, Yes, that this man is unwilling to take responsibility for his actions, yep. that this man is constantly deflecting and recreating what reality was in mm -hmm. order for him to feel okay. Yeah. Justified in the actions that he's doing. Every chance he has a chance to tell Miriam the truth, he rationalizes not doing it because he doesn't want to hurt her. But in fact, it's about not hurting his yeah. himself, yeah. his status. He's losing what he has. It's all about himself. He is an insecure narcissist throughout the entire movie yeah. without being overt. He's well, not an overt narcissist. Well, and I think the thing too, and this is what I think is so powerful about the film, is I think if you watch it carefully, yeah. this forces you to look at yourself. Yes, Because absolutely. we are constantly saying things mm -hmm. and doing things to just subtly get what we want. Of course. And and like, did we mean it exactly the way we said it? Was right. it the exact truth? Because truth is not a black and white thing. Right. Truth is, is, there's a complex set of gradations of like, you know, are there moments where I felt like I'm not connected to my wife at all? Yes, there are. Mm -hmm. If I then said that to a woman, would that be a lie? Not necessarily. Right. But I also how that woman is going to interpret what I said right. in terms of what I mean in the reality. This gets really, really complicated. Yeah. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yeah, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. 
Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Um, okay, so we've established this affair, mm-hmm. and now we got cut to a hard cut into a black and white movie, yeah. which is a comedy which where they're talking <laughs> about an affair, and we get to meet Woody Allen yeah. and his niece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something we're going to do multiple times, these cuts into movies yeah. that are commenting directly on what's going on in the thing. Right. We walk out with Woody and his niece. And Woody, by the one thing we should say, you know, we established it earlier that Woody started as a joke writer. Yeah. He is... To this day, one of the great one-liners of all time. Oh, absolutely. And there was a couple right here. Like, I love he's talking to his niece. And he says, don't listen to what your school teachers tell you. You know, don't pay attention to that. Just just see what they look like. And that's how you'll know what life is really going to be like. Okay? You heard it here first. I think I see a cab. If we run quickly, we can kick the crutch from that old lady and get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I don't know exactly what that means, but that is a funny line. That's a great line. Yeah. He has a bunch of them throughout the movie, yeah. Yeah, he's great. And you instantly really like him. You meet Joanna Gleason, yeah. who you instantly do not like. Right, right. And we hear that we're going to go see uh, a big party with uh, the brother Lester. Right. And Woody's not so happy. Joanna thinks he's jealous. And again, this is something we're going to... If you watch this movie multiple times, mm-hmm. I think the first time you're really with Woody... And then watching it more and more, there's like, oh, man, maybe Joanna has a story here, too. Well, no, I think the thing with Woody is that he is a convenient idealist. And you see this sometimes. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, he's a convenient idealist. When it fits his uh, benefit to be idealistic, he is. When it doesn't, he isn't. And this is what is so interesting as you watch his character throughout the film. I still feel incredible sympathy for him at the Absolutely. end when he's st- oh, sitting God. there with Martin Landau because of what happens with Mia Farrow but with Mia Farrow's character but uh, I think he is willfully causing these things to happen in his life by being the way he is and sometimes in life and this is what's so funny about the film throughout Steve is this juxtaposition between the real world and this ideal, this this supposed idealism world that is good and evil and justice yep. and black and white, and this is what I think is uh, is Woody's very subversive message throughout the movie is that it's your choice what kind of life you want to live, what kind of life you want to construct. Just know that people who are terrible get away with stuff all yep. the time, and you need to be okay with this, or you need to come to terms with it if you want to exist, or you're going to end up a sad sack bitching about the world, or bitter, or alone, or frustrated, and it's incredible to watch it now as an older person well, and, and, and life doesn't make sense yes this is not going to make sense we're not going to mm-hmm. get to the end of this movie and be able to go and that's what it means right we're not getting because this because life does not make sense right you know and and so we go off we go and meet lester yes alan alda he's so great oh my god <laughs> first of all i love alan alda. yes of course. if we were Who going to, yeah i mean like so mash is among my yeah. favorite shows a huge part of me growing up absolutely i i recently rewatched the entire series from beginning to end wow and it was awesome it was just great so maybe this is why i don't have time to hey, i was gonna i was movies. just gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is what you do with those hours of the day yeah. and what's so great what's so it's really it's really the hours of night after my family goes to sleep sure. i'll watch one episode or something right right now i'm redoing seinfeld oh okay yeah, which has also been great right um but to see alan alda who has played these like 
sensitive, mm-hmm. warm, super touchy-feely kind of characters, and now he plays this guy, mm-hmm. and he is off the charts awesome yeah. in this movie. Yeah. And what a... Uh, and I've, I've met, yeah, I've, I've met people like yeah, this. Yeah, so I was just going to say, I've yeah. met this producer in real life. And this is the correlation. I think Alan Alda is to Jared Orbach as Woody Allen is to Martin Landau in their respective oh, storylines. interesting. This is the connection wow. I have. Cause, interesting. Because Alan Alda is living in the real world of this art art situation. He's a producer. Got Like he says to him, I got a closet full of Emmys. And of course, Woody's stuck in this idealistic place where he says, like, you know, oh, well, his work is crap. It's, it's like people who complain about uh, uh, Two and a Half Men or complain about Two Brokers or complain about all these. Like, it's legitimate, those complaints, but they're making money. Chuck Lorre is making money hand over fist. So you can complain. Well, they're about, doing work that people love. Exactly. And you, it may not be you know, uh, Westworld or True Detective Season 1. It's making money, so well, that's the thing. Those are the those are the arguments. Like Woody is a true detective. I, I don't guy, even. You know? I don't even think it's the. It's making. I mean, it is making money. That's right. certainly true. But it's also like they're doing the work. Yes, and you know, it goes to something we talked about in the Rocky podcast. Yeah, which is how's the view from the cheap seats? Right. Like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, and and, and like. with Woody Allen, I don't know how long he's been working on his. And believe me, yeah. as a writer who's procrastinated and spent a, several years finishing a screenplay, sometimes yeah. I've totally. I'm Woody Allen. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I get it. You can. But, but but like how how long has he been working on this philosopher exactly. movie? How long did he work on his little movie about leukemia that won you know honorable mention at some Cleveland film festival Cleveland, or something where everybody got on for showing yeah. up? Yeah. I mean like you know and and but the asshole disrespect that Lester is showing him. I mean pulling out the tape recorder and you know idea <laughs> for a show, idea for farce. A poor, uh, poor loser agrees to do the story of a great man's life, and in the process comes to learn deep values. <laughs> and I love, by the way, you know, if you go and watch this movie, watch this moment, watch Woody's reaction. Yeah. He is such, so good at reacting. <laughs> like, this sort of eye roll, like, oh my God, what are you saying? It's so funny. His eye rolls and his open eyes are the, my favorite. Like, his shocked eyes are always oh. my favorite. He's great. Yeah. And so and so what we've kind of buried the lead here oh, yeah. is that Woody is or Cliff is going to make a documentary like a PBS American mm-hmm. Masters sort of thing <laughs> about Lester's life. So he is being forced because he needs the money right. and it's a real gig and it'll get people to see his work to make a documentary about his brother-in-law who he despises. And who digs it in by saying Look, you you know you need work. Like yeah, I'm only you're doing not this. My you're not choice. my first choice, which I love. But I but I love my sister, and she needs to be happy. So you need to be working. You need a job. I'm going to give it to you. And Mr. Convenient Idealist takes the job. Yep, yep. Got to work. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And the other person we meet at this big party is the other brother. So Joanna Gleason has one brother, Lester, who's yeah. the big Hollywood producer, and she has her other brother, who we meet, which is Ben Sam yeah. Waterston, who is a rabbi. And Ben's eyes are not good. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, we have the eyes of God, mm-hmm. and now the rabbi is going blind. The best person, without question, the best person in this film is Ben. <laughs> and he's the one who, if there is a God, God is allowing him to go blind. Yes. But I also think what he's also saying that religion is blind. Like, religion is blind. Sure. Religion mm-hmm. blinds you to what the real world is. See, I think there's so much in here of what he's doing. And maybe I'm reading into it, but I, you, he, there has to film. be a reason that he's making the rabbi, who is the representation of religion in the film, human representation of religion in the film, going blind. There's, a, there's something to that. Well, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, for me, yeah. what he's saying is that bad things happen to good people. Ah. You know? If, um, yeah, for me, he's saying religion 
makes you blind. Religion can blind you to what the real world is like. Per- well, and this is the thing about this movie. Yeah. As we said at the beginning, there's a lot to chew on. It's true. You know, like there isn't anything. This doesn't feel like a movie where anything is accidental. Right. Like everything seems to be contributing to the theme yeah. and helping you debate the ideas of the film. Absolutely. Um, we, we see Judas driving in a car and he remembers first meeting Dolores. They met on an airplane. Yeah. There's a little flirtation. There's kissing in the hallway. Do you think this is Judas' first affair? No. I don't either. But it's maybe his first affair in a while and as an older man. I think it's, I think it's maybe the one that went the longest. It could be. You know, maybe he had a bunch of one-night stands. I don't mm-hmm. know that he had. Mm-hmm. Like, again, maybe the first time I saw it, I thought, I, I thought this was like a one-time thing. Yeah. Having seen it many times now, I'm like, uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Judah's not that trustworthy. Right. But she saw the ring on his finger. She willfully did it, too. So this, this, that's the thing. For as much as I want to feel sympathy for Angelica Houston's character, she also got involved with a married man. So both of them made choices. Yep. And neither one of them can complain about what the other one is doing because they both willfully walked into this situation. At least in my opinion. I don't think well, either one of them are valid to complain about anything. They do complain. Yes, of course. Um, the whole movie. Yeah. Um, as, as do we all. <laughs> well, sure. Um, and, and also, I think both of them are, they're, they're both lying to themselves. Yes. Because she is lying to him, her, herself in that he's going to leave his wife. Right. You know, or maybe she starts off going, oh, I don't care. It's just a one night thing. And then right. as it goes longer, she, she, she believes even when there's evidence to the contrary that he's right. going to leave his wife. Right. And he's lying to himself that he can get away with this. Yes. You know, and that she's going to just fade away into the yeah. distance and it's not going to be a problem. Right. You know, uh, it's a good thing you and I don't ever lie to ourselves. I think. <laughs> <laughs> We're really lucky. Um, uh, he Judas shows up at his office. Apparently, Dolores is called. He 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 calls her like, "Don't call me at the office." Yeah. And she is again so like. I couldn't help it. I was going out of my skin. I have to see you later. And it's this grasping at straws, and it's so difficult to watch. Wow, I have a different, completely different yeah. feeling about it. I, I think she's called. I think she's a bit deluded in terms of her saying business opportunities, but that's an excuse. Right. That's not real. But uh, but you and I were different in that way. Like you, you're not the big fan of confrontation, and me, I'm pretty much yeah. confrontation my whole life. That's just how I've survived in this world, and so I I understand where she's coming from, and I'm not uncomfortable watching her. I feel sorry for her. like I don't feel sorry right. in terms of, of like above her or judgment. I feel sorry for her that she is in this position because she does love him or a version of love that she can. Oh she yeah, seems very of damaged. Course in her idea of love is to basically uh, 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 blackmail him into love, leaving his wife and right. being with her by threatening his marriage and then later on threatening his finances, yep. saying, which I think is in this scene, the embezzling, all this kind of yeah. stuff. So I'm not uncomfortable when she's on screen. Uh, I, I just I, I find that this is an interesting interplay between uh, a relation in a relationship between two characters right. in a relationship. Right. It's fascinating. Well, and it's uh, and it's really unresolvable because yes. there's no. Well, yeah, it I does mean, get resolved, but it's unresolvable. That's, yes. a fair, that's a fair point. I should take that back. <laughs> so now, and again, the connectedness within this storyline: who is Judah's first patient? But Ben, yeah, the rabbi, right? And in the midst of giving the exam. He does the worst doctor thing you can do, which is break off and go, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I've done a terrible, you know, like, and he kind of walks away. It's like, what, what? Yeah. Um, which is rough to say to the guy who's going blind. Yeah. And then he confides in the rabbi. I've done a foolish thing. Senseless, vain, dumb. Another woman. And even in this scene, he is framing it so that he 
is not guilty. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Which we all do. We all do this all the time. I try very hard not to. Although I have done it, I try very hard not to. Like I'm so hyper aware of it. So when I see it on screen, it's it's tough sometimes to feel sympathy, right? Because he's doing this in an, in a professional setting, right? He's saying, well, he's, he's talking to a rabbi. He at is this he's point. talking to a rabbi. I, mean, I don't think the setting matters at this point. Well, because it's not in the rabbi's office. He's essentially turning the rabbi. He's relying on the rabbi to, in this moment, it's almost like, I guess I look at it from a Catholic place. Like, you can have this conversation in a confessional and it stays there, right? Yeah, rabbis take to go orders. Once again, that's why I meant, like, when I said earlier, I'm looking through a window at this world because I don't know, I'm not intrinsically aware of this world. So, but it's it's so fun to see their conversation because what Martin Landau says near the end of that conversation, he says, we've been having this conversation one form or another for our entire lives. You know, it's funny, our entire adult lives, you and I have been having this same conversation in one form or another. Yes, I know. It's a fundamental difference in the way we view the world. You see it as harsh and empty of values and pitiless. And I couldn't go on living if I didn't feel with all my heart a moral structure with real meaning and forgiveness and some kind of higher power. Otherwise, there's no basis to know how to live. And I know you well enough to know that the spark of that notion is inside you somewhere, too. They're talking about the existence of a loving God. Is the world filled up with the power of God, mm-hmm. or is it not? And what does living in that world mean, you know? So this is what I come down to, because Judah is so sensitive. Judah is so uh, uh, conflicted all the time throughout the movie with his morality that's been kind of beaten into him since he was a child by his father who was Jewish and you know did was he a rabbi his father in in the film seems that way. he holds a cedar and he has all that well the head of the house will have a cedar okay, so cedar, my dad right. was would run the cedar okay so it seems like in this film but whereas Jack is not conflicted in any way shape or form about his religion that we right. see Judah carries it around like a cross almost throughout every scene he's in because where Judah is just so hold on I want to so, I wanna, so, uh, so don't talk to me that there is no you're saying that there's a world where there is no God, well, then what do you believe in good and evil like that for? What do you believe in that morality for? Where's your basis of morality? Well, if, your basis of morality was given to you by the religion that you studied because your father put that in you since you were a child. So you have no, you can claim that there is no God, but you're still living as if there is a God because of how you're negotiating through the world. Well, I'll, I'll push back maybe on sure. two things here. Sure. So, so the first thing is, is that this is an argument that goes on to this day, between religious people and atheists, yes, of like, how is it possible to have morality if you're an atheist? You know, this is something that atheists hear all the time, right? You know, where can you get a sense of good and evil? Now, mm-hmm. I, as an atheist, have a very strong sense of morality and good and evil. Mm-hmm. And 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 the second thing I would say is that for Judah, I don't feel that he is wrestling with God until halfway through the film, until the murder. Is that up till that point he is wrestling with guilt? Mm-hmm. And and wrestling with ideas of good and evil, but I don't think he believes. Uh, I think he believes that he is an atheist, and okay. that his conception of the world is that it is a place that is empty of divine mm-hmm. power, and that there is there is good and evil, but it is only what humans are creating. We'll have to disagree. Yeah, because I believe if you grew up in a religious household, even as you got older, and then you changed to say you don't believe in God, your morality, your good and evil, was built from religion. Whether you want to admit it, or oh, not. I agree with that, and that's no, what I'm saying. Judas yeah. is built from religion, but I don't. He think may he's believe that good. he doesn't believe in God, but but I, but Steve, I would say because at the beginning of the film, the voiceover is 
My father told me when I was a child, all eyes are... And that is before we know anything that's happening yeah. with him. So, Well, right before he says that, though, yeah. he says, he says, now, I don't believe in God. Right. Yeah. I am not a religious man. Right. But my father told me this. Right. Well, and, th- and, and maybe the way to put it, and maybe not that we have to agree, of, yeah, course, of course, but that, that in a way, like having talked to alcoholics, mm-hmm. an alcoholic, you know, who's reco- in recovery, what I have heard, what they have told me is when you're drinking, you're spending all your time thinking about where your next drink is. Yes. And when you're not drinking, you're spending a hell of a lot of your time thinking about not having a next drink. Right. In both circumstances, the alcohol plays a large part in your life. Maybe that's true of Judah. Yes. Is that that he's rejected the religion. Yeah. But it's still, the rejection of that thing is defining of who he is. Yeah, and I think there's a lot going on with his father as well, which we see, which is why when he goes and sees his house later on in the film. But we're going to get to that That's all of it, yeah. Yeah. One one more thing I want to say just about this examination scene. I'm sorry, Steve. No, it's okay. I know you like water. That's all right. <laughs> go ahead. I'm letting go of some of that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't I know. know if you've noticed in some I'm, of the... I'm respecting it. In some of the it. podcasts lately, I've let it be a little mm-hmm. more out of order because it's also about us having a good conversation. Right. You know? I mean, eventually, um, we, we, I wonder if we'll get to that point where we won't even have an order. But go ahead, yes. There's always an order. <laughs> proceed, <laughs> proceed. Um, there's a thing where he... Is that Ben's advice is... You have to tell your wife. Yes. That's what you have to do. Right. That's the right thing to do. Because it is the right thing to do. Absolutely. And he says, maybe, he says, sometimes when there's real love and true acknowledgement of a mistake, there can be a forgiveness too. I know, Miriam. Our values, our feelings, our place among our friends and colleagues. But what choice do you have if the woman is going to tell her? You, you have to confess the wrong and hope for understanding and... Maybe Miriam was responsible in some ways, too, and you have to discuss it and hope for the best. And maybe you and Miriam can never go back to the old life, but maybe there's a new one with maturity and understanding, maybe maybe even a richer one. Like, I love Ben. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why I love Rabbi, even though I'm not religious. Yeah. I've met some unbelievably brilliant rabbis, yeah. and I love, you know, like that compassion and intelligence mm-hmm. and thought. And, of course, his response is she won't think of it as a small infidelity. You know, it would destroy Miriam, which is a lie. Well, we don't know what she's going to, we don't know how she's going to react. Right. But I think it's something he's conveniently telling himself so he doesn't have to do it. Right. Because he was trying to protect himself. Of course. Yeah. Um, And then we see, we've seen some of uh, Martin Landau's uh, flashbacks of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to see Dolores and they're out running on the beach. And she says, you're in such wonderful shape. And he says, for a man my age, which is something that's going to get repeated. And that's his vanity right there. Yeah, of course. Vanity. And then we hear him say that his marriage isn't so good. Yeah. We hear him say the thing that he said he never said. Or maybe he did. Right. But this is Dolores' memory. Right. So once again, this is another layer on top of all the stuff that's going on in this film. Woody is throwing to you. We all remember our relationships differently than the person who's in the relationship right. with us. Well, and the thing he says is very... He doesn't yeah. say, I'm leaving my wife. No. He says... I'll teach you. Someday we'll have a lot of time. What does that mean? <laughs> exactly. You know, and it makes perfect sense why in her mind that means he's leaving his wife. Absolutely. And in his mind, that was just something he said. Yeah. Which narcissists do. Yeah. They say stuff and they never like follow up on the words that they've said. We all say stuff to try to make people feel the way we want them to feel. Sure. Sure. We're always saying things in a certain way. But the good ones of us take responsibility for those Agreed. words. Agreed. And Agreed. I think 100%. Where Judah shows up at her house. 
she's present she's trying to present the perfect evening yes drinks music food she's dressed up she yeah. looks good she wants because she loves him and wants him to love her right that's what she wants in this film she mm-hmm. just wants love yeah she's lonely i guess i guess what else does she want well uh, what kind of love does she want? Well, that's a good question. That's the thing that I that I come back to is like, because I guess you're right, Steve, that she wants love in this, but like the kind of love she wants is destructive and and uh, and possibly just uh, uh, overwhelmingly codependent. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But we don't always want things that are good for us. Well, of course not. We want what we can't have, and she's built up a reality in her mind yeah. that is completely insane, yep. and she is trying to force him into it, yeah. and you can't force people to love you. This is like not. a basic rule, mm-hmm. but all of us, have, I won't say all of us, I've tried at some points, you know, to do to get someone who didn't love me to well, love me. Oh, sure. Who, I don't know anyone who hasn't. Yeah. It's just kind of how it works sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Like how, and, and, and there's times where you're barking way up the wrong tree. Of course you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, but that's and, part of life. That's part and you of demean yourself and you, 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 mm-hmm. you ruin yourself on some level trying to get something that's not gettable. If, if that wasn't an, uh, a very common human thing for all of us to go through, there wouldn't be three quarters of the songs in the world or three yeah. quarters of the movies in the world. Yeah. Uh, hell, nine-tenths of the movies in the world are about yeah. trying to get something that it might be unattainable. So, yeah. There's this great moment where he says, I can't do something. She says, you won't. It's a weekend I can't, just to be together. I can't, Why not? I can't. You won't. Of course I won't. Right. You know, and it's such a great... Yeah. Going, you know, because what he's he's trying to let her down easy, mm-hmm. and he's trying to make it be okay because he doesn't want to be the bad guy. He doesn't right. want to be confronted. And then each step, he's trying. He's getting stronger and stronger. And this is the moment you mentioned earlier, yeah. where he offers her money, and that's when she brings up the fact that he had embezzled money yeah. from uh, I think the charity that mm-hmm. he is working with. I took nothing, not a nickel. Ever. My conscience is completely clear. You needed money to cover your losses. I was around when it was happening. Okay, okay. I needed some temporary help. I mean, for Christ's sake, I mean, after a lifetime of hard work, a man doesn't sit still and watch himself get down the toilet. Now she's kind of blackmailing him. Right, but once again, his argument is, I'm a good man. I did all these things. Should I have to pay or or lose my money because of this? And it's like, yeah, that's how it happens. The other choice is doing what you did, which was criminal stuff, moving money around to cover your ass until you were able to come back. And yes, you paid it back with interest, but that's what she says. She's like, I don't think they'd see that the same way. Yeah. And I think that's the that's Well, the and I would say point. even, it's not that his argument is that he's a good man. It is that it is a given that he's a good man. Yes. He is reasoning from the fact that obviously I'm a good man. Yes. Thing is, he's not. Kind of not. Not, by the end of the film, not. Certainly not. But- Okay, you embezzled. You did embezzle money. Yes. Like, you might have justified it in whatever way you wanted to. Right. And it's the same thing as the affair. Yep. I can't tell Miriam because that would destroy the life that I built. Right. He made bad financial investments, which meant they might have had to move into a smaller house and they wouldn't be able to buy the fancy car. And he couldn't deal with that. And so he embezzled money. Now, he did pay the money back. Right. But that doesn't, you know, that's just luck because mm-hmm. he could have lost all that money too. Absolutely. He stole the money. Yes. That's a given. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, anyway, sorry. Got a little, <laughs> got a little, got a little angry about that. I totally agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> time to film. Try to make this documentary. Oh, dude, so fantastic, <laughs> so good. I love New York. I was born in that building right there, behind the the guy, uh, the statue there, the guy in the pedestal. I love New York. It's like a it's like thousands of uh, straight lines just looking for a punchline, you know. Then what makes New York such a funny place is that there's so much tension and pain and misery and craziness here, and they got that's the first part of comedy. 
but you got to get some distance from it. You know what I mean? That the main, the thing to remember about comedy is if it's if it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny. So you got to get back from the pain. You see what I mean? If it bends, <laughs> it's funny. I still don't know what that means. I, ju- I just love uh, the ways in which they have shots of Woody just completely unabashedly, disgustedly reacting to the things that Alan Alda is saying as he's filming him. Yeah. And yet no one makes a comment about it. Like, Alan Alda's never upset about it. He never points it out. Mia Farrow never points it. No one on the set points out him, Woody, like looking at the sky and shaking his head or looking around going, I can't believe this guy is saying these things on camera. So, Which is one of the funniest parts of the whole movie. It's hilarious. Right? It's hilarious. And we're with him, too. Yeah, of course. Like, we're totally with him. But it goes back to the point that you made earlier, yeah. which is that he's a convenient idealist. Yes. Because if you really felt this way, you wouldn't be making the movie. Exactly. Once you sign on to make the movie, you have a response. In my mind, yeah. you have a responsibility to do this right. Right. And he is not doing it right. No. And and mocking, even at this moment, mocking your subject or or, or visibly showing the rest of your crew yeah. that you're disrespecting this guy <laughs> is not being a good filmmaker. You right. were you were you were not doing something right, but it is hilarious to watch. Yes, and then there's this other woman who's a producer or something, and uh, Lester goes over to talk to her, and that's Mia Farrow. Yeah, listen, I know I told you this before, but if you play your cards right, you can have my body. Wouldn't you rather leave it to science? Oh, that's okay. I'll wait. You Thank listen? you. I'm offering you my heart. You're squashing it. Come on. When are you going to quit this organization? Come work for me. Oh, you'd fire me. I'm much too opinionated. No, no, no. It's listen, okay. I, I'll wait. I like I like mental stimulation. You tried shock therapy? <laughs> That's good. That's funny. And she jokes back at him with those great Woody Allen one-liner. Everything, cut him down, cut him down, cut him down. It's great. Mm-hmm. Cliff goes up to talk to her, and they kind of bond over what a jerk Lester is. Yeah. And he tells her, you know, I, you know, why are you making a movie on this guy? And she says, which is certainly true, like he's popular. Yeah. Like it's going to be a show that people are going to want to watch. Yeah. And Woody says, well, I got someone who's way more interesting who's this philosopher mm-hmm. who I adore. Now, the unique thing that happened to the early Israelites was that they conceived a God that cares. He cares, but at the same time, he also demands that you behave morally. But here comes the paradox. What's one of the first things that that God asks? That God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, his beloved son, to him. In other words, in spite of millennia of efforts, we have not succeeded to create a really and entirely loving image of God. And, and again, we're right. This is straight up. We're going to talk about God yeah. and ideas. And, and one of the interesting things about this film is I don't think this is a film that's really speculating about the existence of God. No, I don't think so either. Yeah. I think this is a film that is talking about how having a relationship to God affects us. And there's even in this philosopher, he says, uh, a loving image of God is beyond our capacity to imagine. Mm-hmm. He's talking about us creating God. Yeah. That's what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and this conception of God as judgmental, you know, like scary mm-hmm. Old Testament or even uh, New Testament, going to hell, judgmental God right. versus loving, compassionate, all-embracing God. And that is throughout this film. Mm-hmm. And again, it's what is the nature of the universe that we live in? Do we live in a universe that's absent of God? And if that's so, what does that mean? Right. Do we live in a universe where God is judgmental and looking has his eyes on you and your sins? Yeah. Or do we live in a, God, a universe where God is forgiving and yeah. gentle and loves us? And what does that mean for our lives? 
<laughs> I love it. No, I'm totally into what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I I don't know what it means. It. Uh, are you asking me a question? I'm asking you. I I think so. Yeah. Okay. Ask me the question. Well, I don't. I'm not. I don't want to ask you what universe you choose to live in. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of in terms of your personal relationship to God, right? Right. But what. But what I'm asking more is like, what does that mean for a person who chooses one versus the other? Right. What is it like to walk the world knowing that God loves you yeah. versus knowing that God is judging you? Right. Versus knowing there's no God. My thing is always come to terms with whatever your idea or decision is about that. A lot of people like Judah in the movie are constantly conflicted about God. And about whether they sh- are okay being the way they're being, whether they're okay with the things that they're doing, whether they're okay that like they hurt somebody and never made amends. Like this is one of the things that cop out, that some of the cop outs in religion that bother me is this whole idea of like, you only have to ask forgiveness from God. You never have to atone to the person you hurt. And that right. drives me insane. And I think that is phenomenal bullshit. And so those are the moments where I, I push back against religion. So, so I, I have a relationship with God. Is my, I've never believed in the church or religion. I always, because it's man-made, it's flawed. And so to me, I've never been one that runs to the church for, salute, for absol- absolution or for connection right. to God. He created me. I don't need a middleman. If, mm. if I'm his creature, I don't need a middleman. I can just talk to him straight up talk to the entity of God, him or her, whatever you believe, whoever's listening, whatever you believe, but I can talk to the entity of God my way. If I've read the Bible. I know the passages. I know these things. I can have a, a separate relationship with him as I choose. And I don't need to go to church. I don't need a priest to tell me what to do. Now, can a priest guide me? Can a priest help me at times? Sure. But when I walk through the world, I try to be as good as possible to the people I care about and I love. Where I have the struggle is when people hurt me, not wanting like them to suffer for the things that they've done to me. Right. This is where I, I struggle with. Whereas Judah struggles more with not wanting to take responsibility for his right. actions. Mine is more about, I want other people to uh, have some kind of justice for the actions that they've done towards it's me. And of course, both of those are natural right. things. Right. Like I'm, I'm more like Judah. Yes. Like I don't have a desire for people to suffer that have hurt. I don't see the point. Yeah. It doesn't. It's <laughs> I like, wish I was more like you, yeah. man. But I'd I be definitely, happier. I definitely feel I, you know, I can feel myself like I, I have to work to, it's not that I have to work to take responsibility for mm-hmm. things. I think I'm a very responsible person. You are. But, but I do, I, I'm so aware of sort of things I say mm-hmm. and what effect they might be having. This is why I'm, as you say, don't like confrontation. Yeah. I really don't want to hurt people. Like that's really a, you know, the idea of hurting people is just terrible to me. Yeah. You know, and so I would rather kind of, well, and this again, to just go to answering my own question sure. is that I don't. I don't believe there's a God, at least not in any conception that's presented within. I think there's all sorts of things in the universe I don't understand. Right, right, right. um, And perhaps all sorts of connections that I can't comprehend. Mm -hmm. But a God is presented by our religions that doesn't seem very rational to Mm -hmm. me. But that doesn't remove in any way the feeling of that there is order and morality and right and wrong within the universe. Right. And even if it's created by ourselves, you know, and that those things are extremely important. In fact, what's so hard for me is when I see people that are uh, so openly and irrationally immoral. Yes. I, I, I'm continually shocked, continually shocked, even though I know better mm-hmm. by people's behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, like, how could you do that? How could you treat someone like that? How could you be so hurtful? <laughs> Yeah, over yeah. and over again. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Can we see that throughout this film? Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Um, 
after he sh- Cliff shows her the philosopher, yeah. there's this great moment, and we know that Cliff's into her. Yeah. From the get-go. Yeah. And remember, this movie is called Crimes and Misdemeanors. Yeah. And we've seen, we're, we're in the world of the crime is Dolores and Judah. Right. And there's an affair and the consequences of their affair. And what does Woody want? He wants an affair. Right. That's what he wants. Yeah. And we see the very beginning of it. And there's this moment where he says, even though we just met, I've taken an instant liking to you. Mm-hmm. And it's, they have great charisma together. It's totally. really, really, really great chemistry. And... Her response is fascinating. She says, and I to him, yeah. pointing to the philosopher. Right. So right from the beginning, we're like, not comfortable. It's not actually, she does not give him back right. what he wants. This is a red flag. It's a huge red flag. I, I had a friend tweet at me yesterday uh, or tweet out about a situation where he was on a, he'd gone on a date with two or three, with this person two or three times. And this person said, I don't want to go out with you anymore. I don't, I'm not, it's just not there. And he goes, well, tell me why. Uh, well, there's no, it doesn't matter. Exactly. But he wanted the reason. And I used to be like this guy. I understand that. Me too. In your mind, you think if you have the reason, then you can somehow rationalize it to yourself. And I said to him, but the truth is, unfortunately, one of the hardest things you have to accept in life and in dating, and especially in the situation, what you're seeing with, with uh, uh, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow in the situation, is like, if you're not getting the response from that person that they appreciate you, they respect you, they cherish you, get the fuck out. Right. Don't stay. And in that moment, when she says, and it's a great jump cut, right. Woody Woody just cuts and goes to the next yep. thing. She says, and I to him. And you can see him linger for a second, and then they cut, which is right. brilliant. I, I want to take your friend's statement, which is, tell me why. I want to take it one yeah, step yeah, further, sure. which is, tell me why. It's not emotional blackmail. No. But it is an attempt to manipulate them into continuing to date you. Because what it's doing is it's saying... Um, if you can't come up with reasons, yeah, then if you, which which people don't like to say because is yeah. she going to say oh well, it's because you smell right she's not going to say that right and then that's going to force her in some way to go on the next date right like I remember my first girlfriend in high school she broke up with me mm-hmm. and I was completely wrecked and devastated as yeah. you are when you're you know nineteen or eighteen sure, sure. or whatever and I remember being on the phone with her and I asked her I said don't you love me anymore so lame right and then no, and then she said she said well you know we broke up at the exchange i was like does that mean you when you said you love me you were lying <laughs> you oh, know oh wow um and and this is such a classic sort of i'm trying to argue her into loving me yeah basically mm-hmm. i'm trying to manipulate her somewhere because i've trapped her in some logic trap right that somehow that's going to result in her coming back to be my girlfriend again right. Right. and it's like uh, Dolores trying to force Judah to love her. Right. You can't force someone to love you. It doesn't right. work. But we're going to think we can use words and all sorts of other stuff to get people to do it, which and we can't. It, and Dolores using the extreme things of it. Absolutely. Accusing him of crimes and whatever, yeah. what have you. Cliff's sister. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I remember this movie. <laughs> this moment? Yes, because I remember watching this when I was, what, when did this come out? 89? So I was 89. probably 19 or 20 renting it from the movie because I rented it from the video store. And I remember this scene, and I reacted exactly like Woody reacted. Yeah, and it's a, it's one of the most memorable scenes in any Woody Allen film, just because it's so out of place with yeah. what normally gets talked about in Woody Allen movies. So, just to explain what we're discussing <laughs> yes, for those of you who haven't, haven't seen the do. film, um, <laughs> this is a terrible spoiler alert. <laughs> is that is that Cliff's sister has had uh, classified ads for like dating through the classifieds? Right. I've been going out with this man that I met through the personal columns. Very attractive. It's very nice. I went out with him three times. 
was never fresh. He was always a perfect gentleman. And then they end up back at her place one night on a date. He asks if you've ever been tied up. And I have to say, it's pretty sexy. It is sexy. Yeah. This is a sexy moment. Yeah. And then, and, and we know that something fairly bad is going to happen. And right. Woody's, she's, and what I should say is that she's telling her brother, Cliff, Woody Allen, yeah. this story. As she's crying. As she's crying. Right. So we know that something yeah. horrible is about to happen. <laughs> and Woody, she gets tied up. Oh, Jesus, by a, str- a guy that you didn't know? Well, now you're going to tell me that he robbed you, right? No. He got on top of me. And, and what? I, I what? can't say it. I just, I can't say it. What? Tell me. What's so terrible? He sat over me and went to the bathroom. Oh! Oh! And this is number two. And then the left her. And then left her tied up. Got his clothes with, and left. With poop on top yeah of it. it is and woody's as you say woody's reaction to this moment is so disgusted which it is a disgusting story hey, of course it's a disgusting and story. his lack of he's not nice to his sister i mean like, no like the sister has experienced as horrible a possible thing as you right. can right. and he's just calling her an idiot he just weighs in on it barbara you idiot this guy could have cut your throat he could have murdered you i what would have preferred it oh jesus you're such a dope i wish i could have sympathy for this and then which I think is the funniest moment in the movie. We yeah. go back to Woody's house. He sits down on the bed next to Joanna Gleason and says, A strange man defecated on my sister. <laughs> and, and Joanna Gleason's the next line is great. Why? Yeah, why? And, and Woody, um, Woody's response is... This is a great line. I don't know. Is there any... Is there any reason i could give you that would answer that satisfactorily that's the greatest word satisfactorily <laughs> a great way and, to just the, and then joanna gleason just rolls over yep. and says well i gotta be up early yeah <laughs> like no big deal it's well and it's just like oh my god their marriage is horrible yeah um because you know and so you feel with woody allen why he's interested in mia farrow yes because the this idea which we had judah sort of hint at mm-hmm. of the marriage isn't going well we're seeing woody allen's marriage with joanna gleason right not go well right one more thing about the sister again we're in crimes and misdemeanors the sister is like dolores she's like i just want someone to love right i don't want to go my i think i'm gonna go my whole life and have nobody love yeah, she me. goes you don't know what it's like to be lonely and yeah. you know, so i've been this for years and blah 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 yeah yeah i mean she's in deep pain she is as is dolores yeah yeah we're finally going to meet the person that you've talked about through this whole podcast. <laughs> yes. Just Jerry Orbach. Oh, he's so good in this movie. He's great. He's I love so Jerry Orbach to pieces. The late, great Jerry Orbach. Yeah. And he's a recast. I don't know who the original actor was, oh, but they fired him. Wow. And they recast and they put Jerry Orbach in. Can we take Nate? Who, who do you want to guess? I don't know. Kaitel? Um, <laughs> Kaitel. <laughs> Eric Stoltz? Eric Stoltz. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, he wouldn't be the same age as Marlando. Yeah, it's funny. I meant to do research on this to see if I could find out, but I didn't oh, even remember to. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder. This scene is great. Yeah. And and it's so so Jack is Judah's brother, mm-hmm. and we know that um, Judah's bailed him out of some situations. Financially, yeah. We know that Jack sort of works on the other side of the street. Like mm-hmm. Judah's in this sort of uh, privileged, wealthy yep. kind of country club world. And that Jack works at Atlantic City at clubs. Yeah. He knows mobsters. He's that kind of guy. Yeah. And Judah's asking for help. What would you like me to do? I don't know, but she's killing me. Want me to have somebody talk to her? Like what? Straighten her out. What do you mean? Threaten her? That's all I need. How else do you expect to keep her quiet? I don't know. Jack, I don't know. 
Why do you, why do you think Judah called Jack? I think, I think he's desperate with the embezzling thing. Mm-hmm. That's when for her, for him it became serious. Like the his entire world construct could be destroyed by this woman. Well, and this is what's interesting about the scene. Yeah. And I've watched it because actually this is a scene I teach in class and oh, I've watched yeah. it. So I've watched it over and over and it's over. It's a great again. scene. It's all in what there's two shots. One shot is them walking towards the. Yes. And then the other, it's all in one shot. Yeah. And Woody Allen does a lot of wonders and they're not showy. They're not Martin Scorsese and Goodfellas. They're not Touch of Evil. They're right. not. It's just with the cameras moving slightly, the characters are in the right place yeah. and we play out the scene. And um, the more I watch the scene, I kind of think through. What did Judah call him for? And the only answer I can come to is he already, somewhere in his mind, knew he was he wanted her killed. Yes. So he might not have faced it, but deep down he knew it. And yep. now what he's doing in order to make him feel good mm-hmm. is that he's not going to bring it up. Right. Is that I'm going to manipulate my brother mm-hmm. into being the one to say, it, to say it so I won't feel guilty. It wasn't my idea. Right. And then I'm going to be coy about it and resist even though that's really what I want. Well, it's like what you said about we lie to ourselves all the time. This is yeah. Judah once again lying to himself yep. that he's a better man than he actually is. Yep. Threatening will only make it worse, Jack. Okay, forget about it. What do you want me to say? How the hell can I forget about it? I'm fighting for my life. This woman's going to destroy everything I've built. That's what I'm saying, Judah. If the woman won't listen to reason, then you go on to the next step. What? Threats? Violence? What are we talking about here? She can be gotten rid of. And the fact that he feigns uh, hurt or distaste or disgust at Jack for even mentioning, like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? What do you like, mean? are we actually talking about getting rid of her? Yeah, yeah, all that. And you could see him thinking about it and the wheels turning. Right. And there's this great moment where he says, what will they do? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Um, and, and it's like, oh, no, you, you're going to do this thing. Yeah. Uh, you got to be pushed into it, maybe. You want someone else to convince you. Mm-hmm. And, and one more thing, and this is just a, as he's having Jack convince him, and then he finally rejects it. He yeah. says, no, no, I can't do that. I can't. And he says, I can't live in a world like that or something like that, mm-hmm. which, again, we go back to this, what world do we live in? What is their God? Is there, right. you know, all those things. And um, one thing I tell to all my filmmaking students, all my directing students is, Wait before you say cut. So one of the most important things a director gets to do is say cut. Mm -hmm. And young directors on their first film are always, when the last line of the scene happens, they say cut right away. It's like, no, don't. Wait, count to two, count to three, and then say cut. And then I tell all my DPs, after the director says cut, you wait. Count one, two, three, and then stop rolling the camera. Because... The, the frequently the last moment of the scene is not the line there yeah. is there's a look there's a turn there's a settle there's a breath and actually that's the scene and mm-hmm. if you watch the end of this scene you will see the last turn from judah and you see he's decided yeah you see he's going nope 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 maybe right. and, that, and if you had said cut early <laughs> you would not have that moment it's good and it's point. key key to the scene yeah cut to a movie the ropes come off I tie sash weights to her ankles with soft cat gun. Please, that's a horrible word. Well, get the angle on this. She disappears. Two weeks, maybe three. And up she pops. None of this stuff on her anymore. No marks. A suicide. And again, it parallels what's going on in the film. Yes. Except now, instead of Cliff and his niece, we have Cliff and Mia. Right. I will reveal a little bit of something about myself. Actually, it's something that everybody already knows. Okay. 
first of all, they say, Mia says, how did you know that seeing movies in the middle of the day is my weakness? Right. I love going to see movies. And the oh, second yeah. thing is there's this moment where he says, Cliff pull, reaches in her bag and says, here, have another cheeseburger. This is my ultimate date. <laughs> and I love, by the way, it's not have a cheeseburger, it's have another cheeseburger, implying right. that there have been multiple cheeseburgers. We don't even know how many cheeseburgers. I respect their metabolism. We, we have movies in the middle of the day yeah. and cheeseburgers. This is the most romantic date on any movie I can think of. <laughs> like, you want the way to my heart. It's like, let's go to a movie and eat cheeseburgers. Like, done. And milk duds. Milk does, yeah. Which she brings as a dessert. Sure, it's good she brings dessert. Yeah, let's. Can we talk about the movies? Like, did you find out what those I movies were? I didn't. Oh, you I'm didn't. Sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I, I like that they like when he's when I like the cut to Edward G because he does find a way to to slide Edward G Robinson yeah. into the movie. Uh, we go to Judah's birthday. He gets a treadmill again. Yeah. We hear this line: <laughs> "You're in great shape for a meal for a yeah. man my age." Again, the vanity, and he gets a call from Dolores mm. and goes to meet her at a gas station. This is a reshoot, by the way. It was originally at her apartment. Oh, okay. Way better in the car at the gas station. Right. It's pretty rough. She's pushing the boundaries, though, yeah. right? Right? Like she's, she's at the house. She's right at the house. She wants to come up and see yeah. Miriam. It's, it's she is. She is in his mind coming to destroy his life. Right. You know that's how he sees it. Well, in her mind, she sees it as fighting for him because she says, yeah. "I'm not going to go let you go without a fight." Just calm down, okay? Say we're going away. I want to be alone with you. And when we get back, I want you to bring everything to a conclusion with Miriam. I can't go on like this. I can't wait don't, forever. Listen to me. Maybe it would, you don't know what it's like. Maybe it would help if you talk to somebody. I mean, like like a therapist or somebody, you know? Don't trick me, I'm, Judah. Christ, I'm shaking. And again, I ask, how do you feel about Angelica at this point? This At this point, this is where I start to feel a little bit like now, retrospect, watching it now, this is where I start to feel a little bit uncomfortable by her because she's now like threatening this man's family and safety and she's like physically driving by the house if you tell me a man driving by a woman's house is stalking and blah 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 it goes both ways and this to me is her the fact that she's right down the road from him, she's essentially stalking him essentially like staking out the place and what she's going to do and confront Miriam but her calling before she does it is that um, kind of unstable situation that you can sometimes get into where that person just wants your attention and is right. doing all these extreme things to get your attention. She just wants his attention, which is why she's pushing the boundaries the way she's pushing the boundaries. And she knows he'll come down to the gas station. Well, she knows. Yeah. And, and it's funny. It's like, there are two separate things. One is the ethics of Judah's behavior throughout the film, yeah. which we can have huge questions about, sure. obviously. Of course. But the other is, is this woman has gone around the bend. Yes. And we see... That she has been drinking, it doesn't make it doesn't hang a lantern on it, but no, no. it's definitely like she, this is a woman who's drinking, yeah. is a woman who's hysterical, yeah. and so what Judah should do is to tell Miriam, I did this thing. There's this crazy person. We have to deal with it, yes. and that's the only correct decision to make. Mm -hmm. But she does have to be dealt with. I mean, there's no quite. I don't mean dealt with like killed. No, no. But, but it's like this is a re, you know like this isn't. There's no way to. This is never getting better. Right. And I think that's what's... If you juxtapose this with Fatal Attraction, you juxtapose this with Presumed Innocent. These are two right. movies that deal with the same kind of situation here, right? And so one... In both of them, yeah. they tell their wife yeah. about the affair. In this one, he doesn't, which which, which is right. interesting how it leads to where it leads to. Yeah. yeah. So we're back at the house. Yeah. And he's sitting. There's a fire. And we begin... <sighs> it's raining. It's raining. Thunder. And we begin by hearing bits of his old conversation with yes, Ben. Yes, yes. And then, and it's done so subtly, mm -hmm. then in the background, out of focus, in the shadows, Ben is in the room. Yes. And they have this conversation. 
Could you really go through with it? What choice do I have, man? Tell me. Give the people that you've hurt a chance to forgive you. Miriam won't forgive me. She'll be broken. She worships me. She'll be humiliated before our friends. This woman plans to make us stink. Did you make promises to her? No. Maybe I let her on more than I realized. She, she's so emotionally hungry. And we know that he's talking to himself. We know that this is in his mind. Mm-hmm. And there's this moment where Ben says, he sits down, he says, It's a human life. You don't think God sees? God is a luxury I can't afford. Bah. And there it is. Yeah. Do you believe in God or not? Because don't tell me God is a luxury if you don't believe in God because God should never have been factored in. Well, but this is, but this is throughout this whole movie, like even the philosopher says, yeah. is talking about how we create God. Yes. Is that, and, and this is a, you know, it's a classic philosophical conundrum. Mm-hmm. Did God create us in his image or did we create God in ours? Right. You know, and that in this is that God the way Judah's seen it, well, I can choose that there's a God or not choose that mm-hmm, there's a God. Mm-hmm. In fact, this idea of choosing God is something we're going to get to with the Father as well, right. is is that in, in that at this moment, he is choosing to not have God because he, because if he has, if there is a God who will see him and he's going to sin, then he has to tell the truth to his wife. Right. But if there's no God, then he can kill her. Right. Because nothing has any moral meaning. Once again, convenience. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and this is, you know, the essential ideas of cognitive dissonance is that our morality is flexible in order to serve our own needs yeah. and our own vision of ourselves. Right. And we will turn ourselves into pretzels morally in order to maintain some of idea of who we are. Yeah. And we all do it. Yeah. Hopefully not to this degree. Sure. And, and even when he says that, when he says this, God is a, is a luxury I can't afford, he says, now you sound like your brother Jack. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where it's this thing you're talking about. He mm-hmm. says, Jack lives in the real world. Yeah. Wherever Which that is, is what Jack had told him when they first yeah. had the conversation about it. So he's repeating what Jack said. Because once again, this is all convenient narratives for him to latch on to, to, to validate his decision to have her killed. Yeah. They're all convenient narratives. He hears these thoughts, these ideas. And this is what we do. What you've been saying throughout the whole podcast, Steve, is that we sometimes uh, say certain things. or manip- And sometimes we manipulate ourselves Absolutely. into believing certain things. Like we'll grab certain comments, certain things. And we're like, oh, well, if that person, it, there must be some validity because that person is good. If that person said right. that, it might mean something. And so we find those things to validate the decisions we make sometimes, yep. good or bad. We, yeah. It happens. And, yeah. f- and finally, at the end, uh, Ben says, but The law, Judah. Without the law, it's all darkness. You sound like my father. What good is the law if it prevents me from receiving justice? <laughs> I don't know what that means exactly, except, I mean, it's a complicated line. It's, okay. it's got a lot in it. Yes. Is that because I don't know what justice means in this context? Because what he really means is, what good is the law if it if it doesn't protect my life as I have it? Exactly. Yeah. And that to him is justice, because like you said earlier, right. he thinks he's a good man because he is a good man. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, my life cannot be destroyed. But they said Caesar is a good man. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's all of that, and that's what's so great about watching his devolution throughout the film to where he ends up at the end but like this moment when he says justice that's the moment like in his mind he thinks i should be able to have uh, sleep with this woman for three years have this affair and then be able to have it end just like a regular uh, uh, a relationship would end 
and have no ramifications no in mind, no consequences, anything like yeah. that. Because that's what happens in regular relationships. Like things end. But because a marriage is involved, there's more at stake. And so in his mind, he thinks he's in a he thinks he's in a more advantageous position than Dolores. Like he's had to school her about Schubert. He's had to school her about Boston, probably. He's had to tell her about all these things. And and remember what they said earlier in the like if you need a, the best restaurant in Paris, you call right. Judah. If you need yeah. to know what the best hotel or what like those the man is a world traveler. The man, like you like you said earlier, I think he has had affairs multiple times in multiple cities as he traveled as an ophthalmologist, whatever his job may be, whatever the charity may be. He's done all these things and and so he does. He feels like, oh, this is something I should be able to get away with. I should be able to end this relationship and move on, and not have to pay the price. And he constantly comes back to this idea that he is somehow he's somehow the victim in the situation, which is madness. Well, and this is what this is what privilege means in yes. multiple meanings. Yes, which is that pri- one thing that privilege means is that you get to go to Rome and Paris and yes. have nice houses and do all that stuff. Right. But the other thing it means is that you don't have to face the consequences that other people have to face. The lesser thans in yeah. your mind. Yeah. Well, and, 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 but the thing is, Judah would never think, no. because the, one of the things about being privileged is you don't know that you're privileged. Right. So he just, his conception That's of himself is, is that he's a good man, yeah. and therefore these things shouldn't happen to him. Right. And he doesn't, because his own sins aren't ones that he sees, mm-hmm. he, 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 through cognitive dissonance, he just doesn't see them. Yeah. And so that doesn't hurt his image of himself as a good man. But when he, if he were to see someone else be a murderer... Well, they should go to jail, right? Because they're not a good man, mm-hmm. and but his privilege allows him to mm-hmm. just escape. We see it all the time. Yeah, we do. Uh, and after this imaginary conversation with Ben, Judah goes upstairs. Yep, he picks up the phone. He calls Jack and he says, "Let's do it. Let's yeah. go ahead with that thing we're that talking thing we're about. talking about." Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting that we don't want to say the words. Well, he doesn't. Nobody does. Right? Yeah, we say getting rid of her. No, his dad does in the flashback later. Yeah, which yeah. is perfect. Yeah, but like it's interesting that that you, you know you know dealing with you know my father in law just passed away. Yeah, is that I said that my father in law passed away. I didn't say he died. Right. You know what I mean? We we there's something about certain words that are powerful. Mm-hmm. If you have a dog that's really sick and really old, you put him down. You don't kill him, no, which is right. in fact what you're doing. Right. But we don't want to say that. Like the, the words have power in this way. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to avoid saying we're going to kill her. But that's what we're going to do. Right. Hard cut to filming this doc. Uh, <laughs> more of Alan Alda's stuff. Not funny. It's not funny, guys. No, it's not. It's not, not funny. You're not thinking funny. You got to think with your ear. You know what I'm saying? You, you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Look, here's the difference. It's very easy. Very easy. If it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny. Hot girl comes in. Please don't film this. Please don't film this. So brilliant. Woody keeps filming it. And we're back to our philosopher, who again lays some deep stuff on us. Yeah. You will notice that what we are aiming at when we fall in love is a very strange paradox. The paradox consists of the fact that when we fall in love, we are seeking to refine all or some of the people to whom we were attached as children. On the other hand, we ask our beloved to correct all of the wrongs that these early parents or siblings inflicted upon us. So that love contains in it the contradiction, the attempt to return to the past and the attempt to undo the past. This one hit me really hard. Yeah, because uh, you know, and I've talked about this on the uh, on this podcast and my other podcasts as well. When I was going through the mental health struggles I was going through last year, one of the reasons was because of relationship stuff. And 
uh, when I went to see this uh, therapist the morning that I almost uh, it took my own life, she said to me, love is when you're, you have to, and I'd never, for whatever reason, I'd seen this way, it never had occurred to me. She's like, when you fall in love, you regress back to being a child. You want to be taken care of the way your mother took care of you as a right. child. What this gentleman does in the movie at this point adds another layer to this by saying, and we want to be with people who are going to repair the damage right. that was done to us by the people who were supposed to love us at the beginning of our lives. So that's a lot to put on someone. If you haven't come to terms with your own shit, that's a lot to put on someone else to do that for you. And so it's so powerful, that that concept. And it's something I had never even remotely considered about love, that it was going back, regressing back to being a yep. child. So it's just it's just great to have seen it now in retrospect at my age and having gone through what I've gone through. Well, and you look at Judah's relationship to Dolores, he's clearly a father figure. Yes. He clearly, and he likes having that power. Yes. And she chooses to be submissive Absolutely. in this way because they're doing exactly what the philosopher has mm-hmm. said to both... Um, to both undo the past and repeat the past yes. at the same time. And this contradiction is, of course, what's, is that it can't continue that way yeah. for them. And we come out of this scene with this philosopher laying down some deep stuff. Deep stuff. Yeah. And, um, we're, and we're with Mia and Cliff. And he goes, hey, let's have champagne. Mm-hmm. And he's, you see it. You yeah. see these steps yep. in his awkward Woody Allen way of trying yeah. to seduce her. And she knows. Yeah. You know? And, and this is the thing. She's allowing it. We mm-hmm. don't know... Like, we don't know, is she attracted to him? Is she not attracted to him? Right. And Lester calls and wants to see her that night. And obviously, Cliff is not happy, happy about it. He has this great line. You're not going to go to the hotel with him? At that sure. That's crazy. I'm going to go with you. Oh, come on, no, don't be ridiculous. This guy, I know this guy. He'll, he, he won't be able to take his hands off. He'll get you in the room, you know, and he'll, he'll read you your Miranda rights and he'll tear your clothes well, off. He's interested in producing something of mine. Your first child. <laughs> Again, great just line. classic Woody great Allen, line. great lines. Yeah. And then he says, well, why, you know, to, to spend some time, I have this 16 millimeter print of Singing in the Rain. Yeah. Let's order takeout and watch it. Again, this is a perfect date for me. Yes, We're gonna of order, course. Yeah, like watch Singing in the Rain. And it's, so it's, it, there's something so romantic that's happening. Yeah. And yet he's married. And in the other plot line, we know the consequences of affairs. And, yeah. you know, and so it's, there's, there's a very complicated thing going on. Yeah. And now it's time for the murder. And there's a beautiful classical piece of music playing. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's Schubert. It might be Schubert. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's another, they yeah, mentioned it so many times. Yeah. Uh, it's beautifully filmed. Yeah. And we should say at this moment that the that Woody Allen is a huge Ingmar Bergman fan. Yes. And this is very much an Ingmar Bergman-esque movie. Mm-hmm. And the cinematographer of this movie is Fen Nickvist, Ingmar Bergman's cinematographer. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, and it's funny because this is not a showy movie in terms of cinematography. Mm-hmm. It is beautifully shot, but it never shows off. Yeah. You know, uh, this sequence is probably the most beautifully done. Mm-hmm. And the guy delivers fo- flowers and we don't see the murder. Nope. We're back. Which I at- think is great. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think we need to see it. We're back at a lovely dinner party at Judah's house. Jack calls, says it's done. Martin Landau's performance is astounding yeah. in this scene. Yeah. His shock, his reaction. He's just physically, you can see, he's just shattered. Everything in him is shattered. Yeah. And I think this is where this thing that you were talking about earlier, suddenly the God that he rejected is right front and center yep. with him. Yep. God, those, those eyes that see everything, they are looking right at him mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. He tries to go back to the dinner party and he is losing it. Yeah. Camera pushes in on him as everyone's talking and chatting. And he says, I've done a horrible thing. And then he comes up with some lame excuse about having to get something into the office. Papers, yeah. And he, and he bugs out. Yeah. 
Heads back to her apartment. Goes in. Insanity. Insanity. He's smart enough to wear gloves, by the way. Yeah, true. And then he sees the body, and those eyes are just looking at him. Just dead eyes. Yeah. Good dead acting. Angelica. Yes. And he sits down and stares at her. Yeah. And he remembers. I'll say it once again. The eyes of God see all. Listen to me, Judah. There is absolutely nothing that escapes his sight. He sees the righteous and he sees the wicked. And the righteous will be rewarded. But the wicked will be punished for eternity. And he gathers up some belongings, some notes, some calendar stuff where his name might be. And he goes. Mm-hmm. Can't back home. He can't sleep. He's in the bathroom. Phone rings. And there's nobody there. <laughs> this is a... We've gotten to some dark stuff. Yeah. Again, hard cut into a jazz club. And we've got Joanna Gleason and Cliff. And they're on like a double date, I guess, mm-hmm. with Mia and Lester, Alan Alda. Yeah. And Lester is just flirting with her like crazy. And yeah. she's deflecting, deflecting, deflecting. Cliff's kind of like, I want to go home. And then when Lester says, let's stay out, Cliff's like, I'll stay out. <laughs> he's horrible. In this but scene. he is shameless. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he's, your wife is sitting right there, dude. Yep. Yeah, it's it's it may be a loveless marriage, but there's still a semblance of respect you have to have in the situation. Well, and you're so obvious. Yeah, exactly. You know, like it's that's not, what I mean. The respect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What well, I mean, it's obvious to Lester and yes, to me. It's not. True. It's not good in any way. True. In fact, honestly, Cliff gets away with a ton of stuff. Yes. In this film, um, we go back to uh, um, Cliff's house, and he's just upset and he's like why she can't like him and 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 joanna gleason's like no sure she's totally into him yeah no way it's not so he calls mia farrow and lester's over red flag major red flag again that he willfully ignores and and he keeps because he keeps wanting to believe just like dolores wants to believe yeah you know like that wanting to believe that there's this love that's going to make your life okay right can lead you into a lot of trouble. Yes. And then what's really weird is that he tells his niece what's going on and that he's totally in love with, with yeah. Mia Farrow yeah. and the, his marriage is falling apart. It's like, dude, she's like 14. This is <laughs> fucked up. You don't reveal things about your marriage yeah, in yeah. this way. That is not, that's not cool. Right. Another exam with Ben. Uh, there's a flashback. In the flashback, Judah remembers Dolores saying, my mom told me the eyes are the windows of the soul. Yeah. And Judah says, well, they're definitely windows, but I don't know if there's a soul back there. Hmm. I mean, that's, again, we're on, we're, we're not letting this go. Yeah. Every scene is reinforcing, like, what does that mean? Are mm-hmm. there, do we have a soul? Now we're, do we have a soul? So he tells, so, so Ben asks him, how did it go? You know, what happened with that situation? And he said, oh, she went away. And Ben goes, oh, you got a break, you know? Sometimes the best the best strategy is to get a little luck or whatever, something yeah. like that. But of course, that's a lie because that's not what happened because you killed her. Right, exactly. Judah meets Jack, and this is the scene you were talking about where mm-hmm. he's just starting to freak out. Yep. He tells them, and, he, and by the way, they really look like brothers. They I think, really in this do. Scene. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Judah tells me he went back to the apartment, and uh, Jack is, you can see, not pleased. Right. Judah drives, he thinks of, imagines men praying, and he ends up at his old house. Uh, Francis Conroy opens the door. Yeah. Um, young Francis Conroy. Six feet under. Yeah, from six feet under. This scene is so, this scene, I think, is more as influential on me as like any scene I can think mm-hmm. of. That we walk into a flashback is that he's walking through his house and he hears the sound of Seder, of Passover. And he looks through the door at 
his Passover. You're afraid if you don't obey the rules, God's going to punish you? He won't punish me, mate. He punishes the wicked. Oh, who? Like Hitler? Maybe. How do you say that? Six million Jews burned to death and they got away with it. How did they get away with it? Six, how? Oh, come on, Sal. Open your eyes. Six million Jews and millions of others. And they got off with nothing. How could human beings do such a because thing? Because might makes right. And the conversation is just brilliant and fascinating. Uh-huh. But the moment that is remarkable is that Judah, watching his own flashback, interrupts it. And they turn to him, and his flashback talks to the adult Judah. And if a man commits a crime, if he, if he kills, then one way or another he will be punished. If he's caught so. If he's not caught, that which originates from a black deed will blossom in a foul manner. Uh, you were lying a little too heavily on the Bible, so... No, 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 no. Whether it's the, uh, the Old Testament or Shakespeare, murder will out. Who said anything about murder? You did. There's something so stunning and powerful about that moment to me. That to me is the moment of the whole movie. Yeah. Of talking to your family in your memory mm-hmm. and then responding. That's, I don't know. I just, that just gets me. No, I love it. I think it's great. And I'm sure you, like you said earlier, you've experienced these with your dad all the time, these satyrs. And the, and oh, so yeah. I was surprised. I guess I didn't remember because I hadn't seen this from a very long time. The conversation that occurs there, you know, I, I've always uh, thought Jewish people are very religious and very much into their religion, and they don't question their religion like, Catholic, like Catholics do, right, or Christians do. But this scene is very clearly uh, Jewish people on two sides of the fence questioning their, like one defending the religion or and the other people questioning the religion. And I, it's always interesting to see that because I always think, so I always think it's a stauncher thing. It's a harder thing. It's more difficult to question. But seeing this is great to watch. It was so fantastic to watch this. Yeah, you, you clearly don't know Jews. No, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so the, the part of the Jewish religion is something that's called the Talmud. Yeah. And what the Talmud is, is basically all the rabbis, all the big rabbis throughout history discussing the Torah and the, the, mm-hmm. the Jewish Bible and, uh, and analyzing it and arguing over it. The Jewish tradition of arguing and what does this mean is so built into the religion. Right. You know, that is like, you know, because, you know, rabbi means teacher. Right. And the, the rabbinical method of teaching is to, that we're going to have a discussion. You know, it's not just that I'm going to from on high tell you this is what it means. Right. It's that we're going to discuss opinions and maybe I'll tell you what Rabbi, rabbi Eliezer thought or this rabbi or right. this rabbi that that that. Uh, you know, you, you wonder why I'm so argumentative and love to discuss and pull things apart. Yep. That is right in the Jewish tradition. This Seder, this is what it's supposed to be. Yeah. You know, the um, and the conversation and, and then there's this moment in the conversation where they talk about faith. Yeah. And that that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. And that and that the father's faith, they say it's a gift. Mm-hmm. And if all your faith is wrong, Saul, I mean, just what if, huh? if hmm? then I'll still have a better life than all of those that doubt Wait a minute. Are you telling me that you prefer God to the truth? If necessary, I will always choose God over truth. That's a lot. That's a lot. And it relates, I think, to the to that philosopher who's talking about how can we imagine a loving God or a cruel God? And how do we imagine God? Because if we're talking about imagining God, we're not talking about truth. Yeah. We're talking about, in some ways, what Dad said, which is having God in my life, whether mm-hmm. it's true or not, makes my life better. Yeah. So I choose God. Yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah. lot to reckon with here. Yeah, but and I think it turns on when when he says oh, nobody said murder, and then his right. dad says, "No, you did." 
You did. You did. That's it. You yeah. did by having this flashback. You did by the murder is what instigated this flashback. So therefore, you said by not even saying it, by causing the flashback, it's the inherent understanding that you said murder. Well, and we can hide from other people. Yeah. And we can even sometimes hide from ourselves. For a while. For, well, we'll see what happens with this movie. Right. We cannot hide from God. Mm-hmm. God's eyes see all. Right. Who said murder? You said murder. Right. Even because even if we never said the word, even if we didn't say let's kill her, even if I refrain from that, I've still done the action. Yeah, you know I can't hide from it. Um, uh, again, we go now. We go into this murder. He says um, yeah. song, which yeah. is just great. I think this is the the woman who sings "Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better." I think that's the same actress who's singing this mm. murder song. Murder, she says. Yeah, yeah. The, which is so great. Um, he decides to call his service, which is something that no longer oh, exists. So great. And you watch his face just fall. The professor has killed himself. Mm-hmm. The philosopher. Yeah. It's so brutal. I mean, knowing that it's coming, it's, you know, but I remember the first time I saw it, he's like, what? Yeah. How is this possible? But we must always remember that we, when we are born, we need a great deal of love in order to, to persuade us to stay in life. Once we get that love, it usually lasts us. But the universe is a pretty cold place. It's we who invested with our feelings. And under certain conditions, we feel that the thing isn't worth it anymore. The universe is a pretty cold place, which it is. Yeah. Particularly a universe without God. Yeah. You know, it's easier to stay in life if the universe is filled with a loving God. And if the universe is not filled with a loving God, then we need to get a lot of love from someone else, right. somewhere else. And we have Cliff's sister who says, I need someone to love me. And we have Dolores who's desperate for love. Mm-hmm. You know? It's, and, and we have Cliff too. Right. You know? Cliff's not a happy guy. But this is why... This is why love is a dangerous thing, man. It's powerful. It's, I've changed my opinions on it so much now. It's like, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And I'm okay with it. But I remember being younger and being desperate for it like they are in this movie. So it's interesting to watch now in, in retrospect, right? Uh, to see the desperation that love brings out. This idea of needing comfort. This idea of needing to have this partner. But while they're all caught up in what you mentioned earlier, which is like if they can get this love, then their lives will make sense. They, they feel saved. They, they feel validated, blah, blah, blah. But self-love is the greatest love you can ever pursue in life, I think. And then eventually find that relationship that will bring you the satisfaction that you need. That's or that you can achieve in love. But for me, self-love now in retrospect is what I believe is the strong, is the one that we should be pursuing from day one in our lives. I think it's the starting point. I think yes, if you don't have it's that. It's the basis. If you don't Absolutely. have that, it's very hard to get the other stuff. Yes. And, and the thing I would... But plenty of people get in relationships with marriages with no self-love or oh, little sure. self-love. Yeah. Sure, but the, but those things are going to be fraught. Yeah, um, absolutely. And the, and the thing I would add is that at the heart of humans is wanting. You yeah, know, the, this it, is true. It is our nature to want yeah. and to believe that there is something that can fill our emptiness that right. comes from outside ourselves. Right. And there isn't. Right. There, 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 are, there is love mm-hmm. and there can be great joy in love and there is... And you can be saved by love. Yes. Up to a certain point. Right. But it will never fill the emptiness completely. No. Because because 
let's because once you have it yeah and you can enjoy it and love it and it's wonderful for a certain period of time right. the wanting remains yes. that part of yourself and this is why why does judah seek dolores it doesn't right. seem like there's anything wrong with his marriage you know why do we seek after things right All, everyone in this film is seeking after things and that one of the things i think that is a sign of wisdom is accepting that oh i'm always going to feel this way Mm. you know nothing it's not it's never gonna yeah. go away completely it might go down yeah you know like but i'm, I'm never not gonna feel this i'm never right. whatever that thing i'm never gonna feel i might have moments of feeling complete i've yeah. had those moments where i went everything's good right now yeah like I, I'm, I'm having i i sure. call it a perfect moment i'm having a perfect moment a great sure. conversation with a friend mm-hmm. a great moment with my son a great sitting in a movie eating a cheeseburger that yeah. would be a perfect moment <laughs> you know but those are fleeting and then there's going to be you're stuck in traffic and you didn't yeah. get that job and that person was were they rude to me was it you know mm-hmm. like that's going to happen and now you're going to feel that emptiness and the desire the belief that dolores has that judah's going to fill that completely leads her to her death right and the the belief that judah has that he can maintain this perfect facade leads him to murder yeah you know yeah uh, and the other one it gets led to defecating being defecated so it's <laughs> yeah. you know it's like uh-huh. yeah a strange man defecated on my sister <laughs> <laughs> and that line is amazing such a great line um so after watching the philosopher we see mia comes over she's she's but are you sad by the philosopher's suicide oh my god yes really yeah you're not no why because the man understood love and understood the universe in a way that these people cannot. He understood it on an intrinsically deep, deep level. But he was so unhappy that he killed himself. No, but he wasn't unhappy. That's your assumption that he's unhappy. It's never said that he's unhappy. It's mm, a good point. Yes. This is, and having gone to the brink myself, this is why this is an interesting thing to me. I actually was happy. Like, I smiled when... And I haven't seen this movie in years, dude. So I didn't remember that he killed right. himself at all. So there was a, like a new moment again for me. So... When he, when I was, I was like, that makes sense. When you can deconstruct the entire concept of the, of life and love and feelings to its base, to almost to where you're connecting Lego pieces about it, hmm. then if you choose to remove yourself from the earth, you're like, I get it. I don't want to be here anymore. And sometimes it's not a tragedy. Sometimes it's not a negative. Sometimes it's just this guy got it. And he, like you said, you've been saying through the whole podcast, he is deep, deep, oh, yeah. and he's he's hitting like really hard buttons inside you about love and about our concepts of God and our concepts of existence. And so for him, he hit that moment where it's like, I've thought of every, I've got it in my opinion, in my mind, he hit that moment where he's like, I've done it all. I'm good to go. I'm out. Or he got some kind of sickness or he had some kind of illness, which we don't know because he's extremely old in the, yeah, he's an old guy. Yeah. Old guy. So he might've gotten something and just took himself out because he didn't want to experience the pain of dying that way. So there's a number of reasons, but I don't feel necessarily sad. And maybe 10 years ago, I would have felt sad, but I don't feel necessarily sad because the guy got, he understood life in a way that a lot of us will never understand it. And so I respect that. It's like geniuses, like chess masters that go insane. I feel bad they go insane. If they kill themselves, I feel better because, hey, I get it. He, they understood the world in a way that none of us will. They decided to take their lives in this way because they can't live in a world where no one else can match them in their intelligence or genius. They can't find communi- communion. And communion is what we really seek in our entire lives. It's funny. I'm so glad you said all that. And and it's a fascinating interpretation of it. Yeah. And and. And you don't have to agree. I'm just... This no, is no, opinion. no. Yeah. I, there's a thing that Hoover, my partner, you've heard me yeah. talk about many times, yeah. would say, which is he talks about the cerebral curse. And what the cerebral curse is, is that the people <laughs> that really dig into life yeah. and the meaning of life, philosophers mm-hmm. and 
they're not generally happy people. No. Because you don't actually want to know. You know, the ignorance, cerebral curse is the opposite of ignorance is bliss. Mm-hmm. Is you don't really want to know how the sausage is made. Yeah. Is that when you, the more you think about it, the sadder you get. So that's how I've always seen it. Yeah. Is that he really understood it. Huh. And that, and it made, and finally he looks at the world and goes, you know, it's what Woody Allen says. He's mm-hmm. like, every morning he woke up and he to, and looked at the world and said yes. And one day he said no. Yeah. You know, and, and Mia's very sympathetic and Cliff kisses her. Yeah. And she says, don't do that. And he, now he says, my marriage isn't going to last. And he's doing exactly, exactly what mm-hmm. Judah did. Yep. But more clumsily and more ham-handedly. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, and, and Dolores was throwing herself. I don't want to say throwing herself, but she was certainly making herself available to Judah, whereas Mia... Mia's throwing up Mia, the red flags. Yeah, Mia's throwing up all the walls. Yeah. 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 And yet, he, when he kisses her the second time, yeah. she does kiss him back. Right. But at that point... You, she said, I've got all this stuff going on. I don't want to do this. So when you willfully kiss the second time, you are willfully uh, accepting the consequences of what you're doing. Well, and, and again, the, I've got all these things and I'm not ready and all that stuff. That's her line of bullshit. Possibly. Not possibly. Well, I don't think it's possible because <laughs> she's engaged a couple of months later, four months later. I think it's three months later, but is it four months? It's either way. Yes. Yeah, it's four way. months later on the either thing. way. Like, cause people don't say. People never say, you know what? I don't find you at all attractive. Right. They oh, say, I see what you're saying. They so say, it's not her line of bullshit. It's her way of pushing. Like I, I don't know if it's her line of bullshit, but it's her way of letting him down easy. Right, right. right. Well, that, that's what I'm saying throughout. We all do this all the yes, time. Yes, yes. We all are trying to present ourselves in a way that doesn't hurt somebody sure, else and sure. present, it makes me sound good and I'm not mean. And, right. And that's what she's doing with him. She's like, you know, no, it's not the right time for me. Right. You know? Uh, like I've heard so many times, I'm not even interested in any relationship right now. <laughs> like that's something I've heard people say. It's like, no, that's not true. It's not true. Cop, a cop shows up to talk to Judah. He's very smooth. I love that guy, yeah. by the way, that actor. Yeah, he does great. Yeah, he was uh, in uh, The Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, and now we finally, we are at the scene you're talking about, Judah yeah. and Jack at the park. Yeah. And Judah's completely freaking out and Jack pretty much threatens him. Yeah. Do you, is that what you think? He's threatening Absolutely. Him? Do you think he'll kill him? Do you think he would kill him? It's his brother. Is this a Cain Abel situation? I I don't know if he would do it. Right. But I but he's definitely threatening him yes, with doing it. He is. I mean, I don't do, do, does let me ask this this way first. <laughs> does Jack care about Judah? I think he does in the in as much as he himself, as he's constructed as a human being, can. I I that's what I would say. I think he thinks he owes Judah. Yes. He I, certainly mentions it numerous times. Multiple times. Yeah. Does Judah care about Jack? Uh, no. I don't think so either. Yeah. I think he feels a sense of responsibility towards his brother and helped right. him, but I think that's about his conception of himself. Right. Uh, and it allows him to be powerful and allows him to be yeah. like, I helped out my brother. Yeah. And even in the situation in the house, he says, my father had so many plans for him. My father, he, I don't know what happened to Jack. Yeah. So there's a judgment of what Jack is, even though he just used Jack to handle his situation. Yeah. 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 There's no appreciation or acceptance. Yeah. Judah sitting outside the apartment, just looking yeah. at the apartment like, dude. Um, Enough with the guilt, man. Yeah. Well, now we're going to have the explosion. We're having a meal with the family. Oh, my God. It's so great. And he wigs out. I believe in God, Miriam. I know it. Because without God, the world is a cesspool. You're drinking steadily and every day. You never used to drink like this. Something new. It's hot in here. Well, maybe we should go to What I should do, damn it. Judah, will you it? calm down? So I want to say something really important about, sure. about going back to Woody Allen's methods. Yeah. Remember at the beginning of the podcast, I know you already knew this, that Woody Allen only sends sides. Yes. 
and that Martin Landau got the whole script. Right. Miriam, his wife, and his daughter only got sides. <laughs> they only have read the scenes that they are in. Right. They those actors do not know that Judah has had an affair or killed someone. Wow. Because they only read the sides. That's great. Isn't that amazing? That's great. So when they're having this scene in the restaurant, why are you freaking out? Why are you drinking so much? They don't know. Yes. I, that to me is amazing. You're doing the work for the actor, and yep. that's great. Yep. They're, all they have to do is play the scene. We don't know what's happening. Right, because the actor always struggles with what, uh, how much do I uh, let what happened in the film, like let what happened in the story affect me in this moment. Like the actor is always struggling with the levels to play in those scenes like yeah. that. And so to remove that fear yep. is a great gift to the actor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I w- it would never occur to me to do this, yeah. but in this, it's like, man. It's brilliant. Yeah, maybe that's just one of the keys. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a moment I heard about where, um, I forget the names of the actors, but there's the uh, Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald in uh, Midnight in Paris. Yeah. And they're talking to Owen Wilson, and Owen Wilson is in there in costume. Yeah. And they go, You're, why don't your costumes look, period? And Owen Wilson tells him no because I'm a time traveler, and they didn't know because they only had their sides. It's <laughs> brilliant. They just thought it was a period piece. Brilliant. They didn't know there was time travel in the movie. Isn't that amazing? That's great. Let's screen our documentary of Lester. Oh my god, what a great, what great revenge! Right? It's it's petty. It's, it's totally it's petty. Total petty revenge. What but, the fuck is he thinking? Yeah, no, but, but it's, it's hilarious. It's the self-destructive impulses right there, yeah. creating a cut like that. The Mussolini cut, and oh the, my the God. donkey cut in there. The him, oh, the donkey cut. Him seducing the woman in the darkness. Yeah. Like all that stuff that he, to make Lester look as terrible as possible. Which is, once again, this whole thing. And I know people like this who constantly bitch about the world that they don't get what they deserve. And then when, and then when they take these things where they have to like sell their, in their minds, sell themselves a little bit, sell their souls a little bit, they sabotage the project on purpose. And I'm just yep. like, you've made your own bed. Yeah. You can lie in it now. Yeah, well, and this is also, it goes to that, that why idealists bother me at a certain point. And yeah. I'm somewhat of an idealist. It's like, no, you had a job. You were yeah. hired to do a fucking job. Yeah. If you didn't want to do the job, don't take the job. Right. But you're hired to do it and you wasted time and money mm-hmm. and just because you didn't like this guy. Don't be an idealist if you're borrowing money from your parents still. Yep. If you're living off your girlfriend's shit or your yeah. boyfriend's shit, don't come to me with your idealist bullshit. The world does not work at your fucking pace. The right. world works. You got to get on board or get the fuck out. That's how it works. Right. Um, and well, this also goes to this idea of crimes and misdemeanors. Yeah. This is a misdemeanor. Yeah. You know, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious. I love it in the movie. I was yes. But um, uh, so after Woody talks to Mia. Well, no, Lester fires him. Oh, Lester fires him. Right. Lester yeah, says, Lester fires read him. your contract. I'm taking this movie from you. <laughs> I'd love to see Lester. I really wouldn't. It'd be a terrible, <laughs> terrible movie of right. himself. Um, and uh, he goes to talk to Mia. Mia's leaving town. Yeah. And Woody proposes. Cliff proposes to her. Mm-hmm. Um, on the spur of the moment. On the spur of the moment. Right. And she says, no, I'm going off to London. And now we get the prison, uh, we're in the prison movie as the days go by. Yeah. Um, the mix of comedy and just fucking heavy stuff is yeah. so fascinating within this film. Yeah. Now, you're correct, by the way. It is four months later. I'm yeah. looking at my notes. Okay, yeah. Uh, and it's Ben's wedding. Ben is blind. Yeah. <laughs> ben it is, is so blind. It's so sad. It is sad. He's the only person I feel sympathy for in the whole movie. Yeah. I guess like fully sympathy, right? Like nothing he did warrants him going blind. Well, because there is no order in the universe that people don't get what they deserve. And yet. All right. Calm down, atheist. Calm down. (laughs) (laughs) And yet yet Ben loves his daughter. And he's so 
like we aren't dwelling on the fact that he's his love is pouring out mm-hmm. of him mm-hmm. um and we find out Cliff is getting a divorce. Judah's there. Cliff's sister's there. All our people right. are coming together for right. our final scene. Um, we have another one of my... They talk about the fact that uh, Cliff and Joanna Gleason hadn't had sex in a long time. Another one of my favorite Woody Allen lines is... First time I was inside a woman is when I visited the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> great line. It's just a great line. I was watching this at work and when I burst out laughing, everybody looked at me. <laughs> that was such a great line. It's such a good line. Uh, and then it's the entrance. Yeah. And Woody Which, turns. Woody does a great job playing as an actor. His reaction. So great. This is where, is Woody the greatest actor in the world? No. No, but he, he can act. Yes. And his reaction to seeing Lester walk in with Mia Farrow is amazing it's and crushing. Devastating. Crushing. It, it is so painful because while we knew that she was throwing up red flags, we also knew that Lester is a jerk. Yeah, he is. And they're engaged. Let's talk about that, Steve. I, I don't know how to. I really okay. don't. His reaction is of such... It's such, so devastating. He's so devastated by it. It's, it's, one of the ones where, it's one of the moments where you really get all the walls stripped away yeah. from uh, Lester, and you see him fully realizing that moment as an emotional creature. And then... Of Cliff. Of you Cliff. I'm sorry, Cliff. Yeah, I'm sorry, Cliff. Yeah, you see him fully realizing that moment, staring at Mia Farrow with Alan. I mean, of all people. Of all people. And he probably secretly suspected the whole time. And then, right? I don't know. I, I would think that he secretly I, suspected. I mean, certainly he had to because right? she was because, at the apartment. Yeah. And she, yeah. All that stuff. But you see him, Alan Alda, say, I sent her roses day and uh, mm-hmm. oh, no, I sent her. And then I, like, I badgered her every day. So this was his approach. And this is an interesting conversation to have because that's some women don't like that like a man who's constantly over them tucking them blah 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 blah. and some women like the attention and getting and for all the the intellectual nature that she was and they and like what he said we made fun of this guy i don't know how you why you would choose this guy she says well he's got you know he's he's better than you think he is he's better than you think he is and and woody responds he goes no he's got money he's successful and she says give me credit give me a little more credit do I have to give you a little more credit? Well, yeah, he's like, I, I did. I did mm-hmm. give you more credit. Yeah. But not anymore. But this is what I'm saying, and this is why the destruction of the idealism in this movie versus what the real world is is what's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Because I agree to a little bit with what Woody is saying in that moment. Uh, I think she does see the security and the stability of him, of Lester. She likes the idea that he's a, he's a wanted man. He's authorial. He's primal in that going after things. And no matter how intellectual uh, some uh, people are, some women are, they do respond to this primal thing in a man. And Lester has that. He's successful. He doesn't take no for an answer. He goes and gets it. It doesn't say, I don't mean all women, but certainly this woman responded to it. In, well, in, and I would reason. say it's like, we're yeah. all shallow. Like, all, like yeah. Yeah, you know what yes, I mean? Yes, exactly. Just, just, as, just as a man might say, I'm interested on what's on the inside of a woman. Yeah. But he might be interested on what's on the outside too. <laughs> sure. You know, the, 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 I think to me, what happens in Woody Allen's face in the moment that they enter. Yeah. Is it's not just that you didn't get the girl. No, no, no. If it was that you didn't get the girl, that would be sad. But that's not what happens to him. What happens to him is his entire conception of the universe crashes. Yes! Is that he thinks the universe works a certain way. Yes. And he thinks that this person that he had become close with, that he had built up an idealized image in his head of who this person was, was something. And it ends up she's something else. Yep. And we don't get to know exactly what that something else is. Right. I think your description of wanting security, and I think that's... 
right. That's very likely. Yeah. But we don't get to know. We don't know what her relationship with Lester is right. like. But we know that whatever Woody thought is not true. Right. And part of his conception of the universe is that Lester is a jerk. Yes. And while he could get success and money, all those things don't matter because because Cliff is a good person and yeah. this is who he is and that Mia should see it. That's not true. No, because Cliff does a lot of uh, 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 dirty things behind his wife's back. Yep. Yes, they they may not have they may have a loveless marriage, but they're still technically married. Right. So he's doing these things. So he thinks because he creates a fantasy world with Mia Farrow in his mind of being this idealistic relationship for him, he uh, is, excuses his behavior, his yeah. negative behavior, the cognitive dissonance we see throughout the whole film. Exactly. With with Lester, he sees. It's so overt right. that to him it represents everything he is against, right? And for her to choose him is what you said, the complete destruction of his universe. Well, and I think the thing that's what makes it so brilliant within the film yeah. is that Mia's choice of Lester is not just a betrayal of Cliff yeah. and a destruction of his conception of what's going on. Yeah. It's a betrayal of us. Yes, we feel betrayed. Yes. When she walks in with Lester, it's like, what the, f- how can this have happened? Right. Like, we didn't think, we knew she was resisting Cliff, but I, I, it's what I know I was shocked the first time I saw yeah, it. Yeah. And I'm still, every time I see it, shocked on some level. I'm you know? slightly less shocked only because we have that Emily Dickinson moment when they're on that double date. Yeah. And he finishes the poem. Yeah. And you're like, oh, see, there's more to this fucker than you think. Well, and there's another thing too, which is that we have a moment between Lester and Joanna Gleason. Yes. Alone. And they are happy and joyful yeah. and fun. And you see them, I because th- all we've seen of Joanna Gleason is that she is horrible. Yeah, yeah. And now we see her without Woody. Right. And she seems great. Yeah. And suddenly it makes me go like, oh, maybe Cliff is the problem. Yeah. Well, or not the problem, but their relationship. Yeah. Right. Some people bring out the worst in you. Some yeah. people just do in relationships, in whatever. We've all had it. Like some people just make you feel the worst because yeah. you just can't vibe with that person. And no matter right. how much you try, you spend trying to make it work, a lot of what's left is the negative feelings because it just doesn't work. And so uh, you are a completely different person because you carry the weight of the relationship into every conversation. Right. And where that free-spirited, lighthearted person that was there at the beginning is now downtrodden, beaten down by the relationship. And that's what Joanna Gleason is. So much so that she's in- almost completely indifferent to her, her uh, Woody's sister getting defecated on. Like she could care less. Right. Because there's no love there. And Woody's, just, Woody's hatred of her brother's you know, and not not the rabbi, but certainly Lester. That's all. That's how it's manifesting itself. Their their loveless marriage and their or their hatred against each other, right. judgment of each other, yeah. right? And so all of that is there in in that moment. And you're right. We see Alan all just really happy with her, and he's happy for her, which speaks to his caring for his sister, right? That speaks to his. He's he's a human being. He does have a feelings and love and affection. He cares for his sister. When we see more affection between Joanna Gleason and uh, and uh, Alan Alda in that moment than we ever see between Martin Landau and Jerry Orbach, right? Or between Martin Landau and his wife, right? Or between anyone? Well, until the end, until the very end, the, yeah, yeah. So I just had a full epiphany. Ooh, um, I love these moments and in our I, shows. And and I hadn't. I mean, I've watched this movie t- countless times. Sure, it just occurred to me. You know, there are all these parallels in the film. There's Dolores and mm-hmm. Cliff's sister. There's Cliff and Judah. There's all these parallels we see. Yeah. It never occurred to me until this moment that Lester and Judah are the same. Is that Lester is a successful, 
wealthy yeah. man who is charitable, mm -hmm. who has a outward facing facade yeah. as the sex successful man who is you know he gives to charity he's he's paid for ben's yeah. wedding yeah he is liked by all these people and that the difference in that he has affairs we know this yeah and the difference with lester is that his facade is weak and mm -hmm. judah's facade is strong right like judah presenting the intellectual privileged right. wealthy charitable good man is so much better than Lester's but in a lot of ways they're just really similar yeah and in fact Lester is probably a better man than Judah because as far as we know he hasn't killed anybody and he's not conflicted yeah about who yeah. he is yeah he just is who he is no he's he doesn't see uh Cliff's film and go oh my god I need to take a look at myself is that how people see me no he goes get this shit out of here yeah. I'm gonna re-edit this thing he knows, knows who he is you're an ass that's a great point is yeah. that Lester knows who he is exactly well he actually doesn't know who he is well but he has a he is strong in his uh vision of who he is he's happy with who he is he's happy with who he thinks he is right and that's yeah. what I and that's what I I say at the end of the day you know it's like what I was saying earlier is like if you just be, just come to terms with who you are like who you are and, and move the fuck on. That's how it is. If you're constantly worried about how, how you're constructed, it's a terrible existence. Well, for me, there's a balance. Is that is that you, if you just go, I, I'm just comfortable with who I am and I don't care, then those are the people that walk around and hit each other and hurt each other. You know, well, sure. it, it do a lot of damage. Is sure. that you need to be able to, you need, I think people need a little bit of introspection. Sure, self-analysis. That's A little self-analysis, but right. too much is paralyzing. Sure. And too little is... Uh, uh, narcissistic, narcissistic and problematic yeah, exactly. so you know it's in everything there's balance to be found All right, um, we, Mia and Cliff have their last moment which we already discussed mm -hmm. the letter moment what do you think about the letter <laughs> first of all it's god. hilarious is it in a pink envelope <laughs> yeah. oh my god well and, and that he, he, he plagiarized most of it from James yeah, Joyce yeah James Joyce this one mentions of Dublin <laughs> all those mentions of Dublin was brilliant he can't not have a joke <laughs> and then we sit down with Judah and Cliff. Which is great. Our two main characters of our film yeah. have finally come together and they in their tuxedos and sit down. And it is the movie poster. Yes. And Judah tells that I have a great idea for a movie. Great plot. Let's say there's this man who was very successful. He has everything. And he tells the story. And we don't hear the whole thing because that's right. when we cut our way to Joanna Gleason and Alan Alda. Yeah. And we come back. And what's interesting is when we last saw Judah, he was at his lowest low point mm -hmm. where he freaked out at the restaurant, mm -hmm. completely falling apart. And he tells now that as we come back, he says he was at his lowest point. And after the awful deed is done, he, he finds that he's plagued by deep-rooted guilt. Little sparks of his religious background, which he'd rejected suddenly stir it up he hears his father's voice he imagines that god is watching his every move suddenly it's not an empty universe at all but a, a just and moral one and he's violated it and then he woke up and the day got a little bit better yeah. and then one morning he awakens and the sun is shining and his family is around him mysteriously the the crisis is lifted the main turn in judah's character happens off camera we only hear about it in this story we don't see it yeah yeah you know which is a really really interesting cho choice and we find out that you know he tells he's not punished he, he prospers and cliff listening to the story says oh well then his worst beliefs are realized and and judah says yeah i said it was a chilling story didn't I? <laughs> and this ending is so amazing yeah 
Because Cliff is like, well, you should have him turn himself in because in the absence of a God, he has to be God himself. And you're just like, but that's not the real world. That's like, a, you watch too many movies. You watch too many movies. Yeah. The, this, it's a great indictment. The, the, there's so, well, and there's so much in this. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we had another podcast. I don't remember which one it was. We were talking about, can you be satisfied with a movie where the bad guy doesn't get punished? Yeah. This is that movie. Yep. Nothing happens to him. Exactly. And even the guilt, the punishment of the, you know, the God that was watching him and the feeling of his own sin. Yeah. It's not here. Even the slightly better uh, Cliff than Lester. Yeah. I would say Cliff is a better human constructed in that way to a degree than Lester is left broken and devastated by yeah. everything. Yeah. Right. Whereas Martin Lando's character, Judah gets away with everything and even and even has a loving moment with, with his, his wife wife at the end near the end rather yeah. has that kiss and then they move off and i think and i thought they're going to end that moment the movie with just panning to cliff who's sitting there just destroyed with the drink in his hand mm -hmm. but then they move into a montage or something else yeah oh, right. the wedding yeah the wedding yeah exactly yeah. and then the voiceover and the voiceover from yeah. the philosopher yeah yeah it's um which is what, what do you, did you write down what he said we define ourselves by the choices we have made we are the sum total of our choices. Human happiness does not seem to have been included in the design of creation. Yeah, this is great. It's so subversive, this movie, man. This yeah. whole idea of religion, this whole idea of happiness, this whole idea of love. He's questioning everything. But I will say what I come up with is, I don't know. Are we in final thoughts? I don't know. Are we no, we got to wait. We, yeah, okay. We're at the end of the movie. Okay, I don't know if we're at final thoughts. Let's go. Don't finish no, your... I was just going to say, like, but the two people who come out of this movie completely clean are the two people who are happy to love their God. And that is Ben, ben. and Judah's dad. Hmm. Both of them. Yeah. When we're introduced to him, he yeah. says, I will always choose God over the truth. Yeah. That's not a negative. In his mind, God brings him joy. God brings him peace and happiness and a construct answer to his word. Well, for can, that guy. Yeah, for that guy. That's yeah. what I'm saying. In his yeah. mind, God brings him happiness, peace, and joy, and he's able to function in the world. Ben says the same thing, and that to me is what strikes me, is everyone else is like conflicted and dirty, and evil, but the two people who come out of this, and it's, he's, I don't think what he's saying, you have to believe in religion, you have to believe in God. No. He's just showing that these two do because there's no conflict within them. Well, I think what he's doing throughout the film is he's presenting you with difficult questions. Yes. He's not giving any answers here. Nope. He's not saying whether or not... I mean, certainly Ben is Ben is by far the... Ha and he's blind. Yeah. The blind guy is the happiest person <laughs> in this movie. But it, also, who's the other person who ends up really happy at the end of this movie? Or there, there are maybe three more. Yeah. Lester, Lester does. Mia Farrow, and Judah. Right. Judah, the worst person in the film, right. kisses his wife and walks off happy. Yep. So, so like, it doesn't let you go, you know, it's not, it's not a movie. You right. know, our line, like, you've watched too many movies. That's not real. Because yeah. what Judah says is, you know, we rationalize. We find a way to go on. Right. You know, and who's the one person who didn't find a way to go on? The philosopher. Yeah. You know, like, this movie is so rife with contradictions. Mm -hmm. And this is why we have so much to chew on. This is why this has ended up being one of our longest podcasts. Is it really? Yeah. Shit. For a, for a movie that's the 90-minute movie. We're intelligent people. We just have to talk about things. Yeah. Well, and this is, this is, this is why I love Woody Allen. Yeah. There's, there, there, and there's, so there's one more thing I feel that we have to bring up. Sure. Uh, which is that this movie is made in 1989. Yeah. In 1992, Woody Allen announces that he's marrying the adopted daughter of, his, of Mia Farrow. Okay. 
So she was 22 in 1992. Yeah. That means that in 1989, she's 19. Yeah. And this is a movie about a man desperately trying to cover up his affair. Yep. And I don't think, and I don't know what his relationship with Sunyi was right. in 1989. Right. But my guess is there was there was one. I, and my guess is the scenes with him and his niece are stand-ins for his scenes with him and Sunyi. Yeah. I purposely chose not to bring up Woody Allen's per- personal right. life right. Uh, at the beginning. And I don't think we can talk introduce him as a filmmaker and not talk about sure. it a little bit. I agree with you completely. Is that there's some troubling things in here. Yes. Exactly how troubling is really hard to determine. And mm-hmm. I researched it a bit. Is that there is no question that he likes younger women. Yes. There's no question that he ended up marrying the adopted daughter of his mm-hmm. longtime girlfriend. Yeah. Who has other children who he adopted. Yeah. So the sister of his children. I mean, like, that's some really fucked up stuff. There is. And then there's accusations that he molested uh, young children. Right. And I, because there's several great artists who fall into this category yeah. of like, what do we do? You yeah. know, what do we do here? I love this movie. Yeah. And I think part of the fuel of this movie, I believe, the brilliance of writing the Judah character yeah. must come from things inside Woody Allen. Yeah. Just as, you know, we have in Manhattan a story about an older yeah. man in love with a younger woman. Yeah. It's a brilliant film. Yeah. But it's very troubling. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't know. Do you have. I, I... It's tough for me, and I agree with you. And I think these, you can even throw in a Cosby in the situation. And it's really tough because. Cosby's we're, the hardest for me. Well, we're, we're two men discussing this, right? And of course, all these. All these acts by these talented men have been inflicted on women and so it's very difficult like would women have a easier time dismissing these two as artists if they were cinephiles if they were massive fans of comedy are they just are they is easily easy can they dismiss them as easily uh uh as we seem to have trouble doing like we can't seem to dismiss woody and be like fuck we should never talk about him again blah 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 same thing with michael jackson many accusations yep. of child molestation do we all of a sudden now hate his music it's very difficult it's these are conundrums of the world which the crimes and misdemeanors is really a microcosm of that yeah is these these men who have these unsavory parts of their personality yet are successful in their lives doing what they're doing and do we what is the true success is that just how the world is and so therefore we should get off our moral high horse and not judge them. I don't think we should ever get off our moral high horse. <laughs> I think you and I look good up there. That's true. Um, uh, 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 yeah. But the Cosby thing is the most difficult one, in my opinion, because that man made an incredible amount of, of time, spent a lot of time and money building up the African-American community, making them feel proud about themselves, and giving them a voice when they had no voice in entertainment for a long time. A very powerful voice. It's the hardest one so, for me, yeah. because I grew up, I memorized Cosby albums. Yeah, I listened Those to were them the over best. And, I listened to them over and over again. Yeah. And there was no question in my mind that I would play Cosby for my kid. Yeah. And now I don't know that I ever can. Yeah, I agree. Because, um, because so here's... I can't so, even watch a Cosby show episode anymore. I, it's so painful. Yeah. So, and that one... There is a, there's a lot here, and, right. and obviously we're not going to have a whole podcast. We, we no, could no. do a whole podcast discussing this, right. but but so first of all, I'll tell you, I always ask my class, because I do Woody on yeah. my class, I always ask my class, what do you feel about these issues? Yeah. And almost all of them say, we don't care. Wow. Including the women. Wow. So this is always shocking to me. They Now, it might just be their youth and their millennials and their, you know, yeah. like, but they're just like, whatever, if we like the movie, we like the movie, if we don't like the movie, we don't like the movie. But that's you know? what I'm saying. 
Okay, go ahead. So I'm sorry. Steve, well, so, that, so that's one thing. The the thing the thing with Cosby is that to me, what he did is a violation of everything he stood for. Yes, everything that I felt about him yeah. is tainted because of what. He, and and I think there's to me there's very little question that he did some terrible stuff. He there's no been, question. He hasn't mind. been convicted of of, of the crime yet, yeah. but but it seems likely. Yeah. With Woody Allen, it's slightly different in that he is also exp- he put his stuff out there. Yes. In Manhattan, in Deconstructing yeah, Harry. it's there. His, he has been, ex- it's not like he, so so the fact that those things exist in his personal life are not a contradiction. Right. The other thing is that we don't know about the little kids. Right. If it's little kids, that's like, no, you're a horrible person. Right. The the stuff with his, uh, with Sunyi is terrible and fucked up, but not a crime in the same way as the little kids one. I don't were. know because I don't know when he started well, to have... We don't know. Yeah. yeah we, like, cause, like if, if she is 14 years old when he's taken her to theaters and taken her to movies and whatever, then this is the beginning of a... of like almost a craft... a, a manipulation... Like you said, we manipulate people to do little things uh, for us and build it on. He might have been grooming her for the lack of a better term to be his perfect... Uh, companion while he was still with Mia Farrow in this possibly loveless marriage like he has with Joanna Gleason uh, in the movie yep. it's certainly possible and Mia Farrow being in the movie is so like it's so crazy well and that they're, they're, when they had to go act and I think it's husbands and wives yes he acted with Mia Farrow the day she found out about yeah. Sunyi they're yeah. in a scene together yeah there's a it's that's rough that's what I'm saying there's yeah. a lot of fucked up shit about Woody and when you separate him out in a personal way yeah but you can't discount or you can't deny his talent and his ability no, to this write is a great film amazing maker. films that ask questions maker. of society and our world. Yeah. So, final thoughts. This is a great film to revisit. And if you haven't seen it and you've listened to us this long, uh, I, please go back and watch it with our words ringing in your ears and see how much you can get out of this and what your thoughts are, what your ideas are. This is a fantastic film to explore as you get older as well because you've lived through these moments now. You're not young and exuberant. You actually feel the weight of the world at times. You've experienced desperation. You know what it's like to be broken hearted. You know what it's like to love. You know what it's like to be desperate for something. And the film explores all of that and then asks you to go even deeper, which I love films like this. And so I can't thanks Steve enough for making us do this film and for those of you who've listened to us this entire time you've gotten uh, a your first authentic taste of what John Rogan and Steve Morris do off mic about <laughs> film and what inspired us to start this podcast in the That's first right. place is our talking about a film and then going on massive tangents and exploring all this such and without without a construct at times about uh, w- within the film rather without a construct at times within our conversations and this is what we do so this being the longest one is no surprise to right. me because there's so much to talk about and this is what inspires us when we have conversations about film. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was thinking I was thinking this like, you know what? Some movies are like an iceberg. You know? <laughs> yeah, you 10% see, yeah. on the surface and 90% underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a 90-minute film. It's uh it's got murder and funny mm-hmm. lines and a lot of great performances yeah. and it doesn't answer any questions. No. It continually poses stuff and lets you deal with it yeah and that i think is why i keep coming back to it is i keep coming back to it looking for truth mm-hmm. looking for an answer and there is no answer because guess what folks there is no answer right you know there's only We're, your answer yeah well and and there's not a universal we, you there might be some people out there who are like ben and judah's father who have faith and that faith is a gift mm-hmm. but i think for the vast majority of us there's always doubt 
Right. And that doubt, like that hole, that wanting I talked about, that's mm-hmm. always, that's part of the human condition. Yep. We are not going to know. But one thing that I think this movie says, I think, is that to some degree we have the power to choose the universe that we live in. Yeah. We have the power to choose if there's order, if there's love, if there's sin, yeah. if there's morality, yeah. if there's compassion. And we have the power to some degree to create that universe with the people that are around us. Mm-hmm. You know, And so maybe if this movie helps you to be a little more compassionate, a little more sensitive, maybe that's pretty cool. <laughs> sure. If like not, that. you can just enjoy Woody's one-liners. That's right, exactly. All right. Well, that's that's a lot of what we think about crimes and misdemeanors. <laughs> yes. As always, we'd love to hear what you think. You can reach us on Facebook at The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, on Stitcher, on iTunes. You can leave reviews on iTunes. You can leave comments on YouTube. You can support us on our Patreon page, and we're so grateful for all of you who have supported us. And as always, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? You guys can also reach me at The Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A, on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, please subscribe to the Top 10 Podcast and, or to the Smoes No Plus Podcast channel, which has the Top 10 Podcast and uh, the Outlaw Nation Podcast, which I drop on Thursdays, Top 10 on Tuesdays, uh, and Fridays on Collider Movie Talk. And of course, now, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a columnist for the trackingboard.com. That's tracking-board.com. Go and read my columns. I'm doing every Tuesday and Thursday, I do a new column for them. And so it's just, it's been a nice I'm just busy all the time, Steve. Or come visit me at Universal Studios if you want. Whatever you want to do. Ask for Barb. <laughs> yes, ask for Barb. That's right. <laughs> or Babs, Babs. Babs. Ask for Babs. Babs. Yeah. And if you don't know what that reference means, you'll have to go look it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.